0: Okay, so we'd like to welcome you to our weekly Bible study for 81207. 7 And today we're going to be doing a, particularly a Bible study. This really isn't going to have anything to do with current events. Of course, it will relate to current events in, in a way. But we're going to talk about imprecatory prayers, how to get our prayers answered, things that we do to hinder them, uh, what imprecatory prayers are, why they actually are a biblical thing, if done in the right biblical mindset, and that's the thing that we have to emphasize—that you there ha, the right condition has to exist within us in order for an imprecatory prayer, I believe, to be pleasing to the Lord. And we're going to talk about a lot of people don't know what they are, and I'm going to be giving my testimony in regard to the subject as well. I got really convicted this week that I needed to do a dedicated study on this, and I was at a conference this week, and a man. Uh, mention this. tenant, it's something you very rarely ever hear, and I think it's the reason that it's never brought up and and you never hear about the subject or it's never taught on is one of the main reasons why this country is in the shape that it's in. And I'm not going to give too much away now, but I'm going to set the stage through the Bible. So the first thing that we're going to go, and I I know if you've been on my email list, you probably heard me recommend uh, to listening to Pastor Weaver's Sermon, up on Sermon Audio, called A Door of Hope. And I can email that to you, if you don't have that. Or you can look up uh, Pastor John Weaver and and look up, it's called A Door of Hope. And um, that sermon really changed my life and confirmed a lot of things to me. And this is going to be kind of a similar sermon, but we're going to get off even into some different areas today. So if we go to Hosea, chapter 2, verse 2. And this is... uh, Essentially in regard to Hosea and his adulterous wife Gomer, which was a which was a type of adulterous Israel, okay, at the time. There was many parallels here. Okay? And it says in verse two, it says, Plead with your mother, plead for her for she is not my wife, neither am I her husband. Let her therefore put away her whoredoms out of her sight and her adulteries from between her breasts lest I strip her naked and set her as in the day that she was born, and make her as a wilderness, and set her like a dry land and slay her with thirst. Now, in this regard, because this woman is is playing the harlot and the whore, essentially, God is threatening here that He will, if she doesn't stop this, He's going to strip her naked, He's going to set her as as in the wilderness, and, and like in a dry land and slay her with thirst. Now, this relates to what we're going to be talking about today in regard to God's judgment on an individual or sometimes even a group of people or even sometimes a nation, and how this judgment of God for a righteous believer in Christ is actually our door of hope. And we're going to we're going to talk about this more here. It says in verse 4, it says, And I will and I will not have mercy upon her children, for they be the children of whoredoms. So in other words, she's had children by other men out of wedlock. They were not, um, uh, in this regard, they were not um, Hosea's children. They were they were actually children of, of another man, or, or men. And then verse 5, For their mother hath played the harlot, she conceived them have done shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers that give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, mine oil and mine drink. Now notice here that this harlot whorish wife that Hosea had was motivated through particularly material goods and money. See that in verse 5. This is very, very common in today's day and age. A woman that plays the harlot many times does so because she's primarily motivated through the money. I mean, the love of money is the root of all evil. And I've seen this, this play out time and time again. And I'm, I don't want to say that there's not whorish men that aren't motivated by money. But in this case, we're talking about an adulterous wife here that's, I mean, granted, I'm sure there's other reasons that she's motivated, lust and whatever else. But she definitely is also motivated by, by material things and by money. It's very clear. Verse 6. Therefore, behold, I will hedge up thy way with thorns. Now, this is God going to be doing this. He's going to hedge her way up with thorns. And I will make a wall that she will not find her paths. Okay, now God can do this. And see, if you think about it, what we're going to be talking about from here on out from this verse is God's mercy. Because if God doesn't do this in her life, and she dies in her sin, she goes to hell and burns forever whereas if god judges her in this life hopefully she'll wake up get right with the lord and not burn in hell forever what's more merciful and this is what's never this is the crux of what's never discussed in most modern day churches what we're going to be talking about here within precatory prayers why does the bible say in first corinthians chapter 5 talking about the uh, the man that had taken his father's wife basically to bed and, and, and they talk about that that church in Corinthians had basically gloried in their shame. But what, is, what does Paul say? He says, turn such and one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that their soul may, might be saved in the day of the Lord. So see, turning such and one over to Satan in that regard was actually for their benefit. Hopefully that they would get saved. And then it says, purge out the old leaven. Lest If you don't do that, the leaven will leaven the whole lump. Leaven is always a type of sin, and that leaven, if you leave that, in this particular case in your church congregation, it's going to leaven the whole church. Well, that's what the churches are today. They're totally leavened, essentially. I mean, I can't, I, people are emailing me all the time, where can I go, what can I do? I don't know what to tell them. I really don't. Most of the churches don't even know what the Bible is. They don't even know the King James Bible is the Word of God. And if you have any doubts on that, just email me. I'll get you the uh, information on that. And they're are 501c3 entities, corporate entities, that were given their, their right to exist, that were created through an agreement they made with the state, their corporate right to exist. Oh, it doesn't matter if, if you know, they'll they say, well, I'm a corporate soul, or I'm, I'm a trust, or I'm this, or I'm that. Most of these are still governed and overruled by the government and the Internal Revenue Service. Well, you can't have two heads. Anything that has two heads is a monster. So, the problem you run into is the government and the Internal Revenue Service can dictate to those churches what they can say and what they can't say. By law. Because the church was the one that entered into the agreement with them. So see, you've got all the... These, these are two of the main things. Then another thing was what I just, what I covered last week on the sexual sins that are pervading and invading the churches that most people in the churches don't even think it's sin. That's another gigantic reason that the churches are in the shape they're in. So I, I don't really know what to tell people. I think that, that you know, you're going to have to search out the little pockets of truth, and I, I'm hoping that that's what, what I'm doing here, is, is putting it out... Um, And and there's other good pastors up there. There's Pastor John Weaver. There's Pastor Slattery. Um, There's other good... There's the Underground Church Network. These are ones that are on um, uh, sermonsaudio.com. And so there's there's some good people up there. And there's becoming more and more and more. I was up at this meeting this weekend at Bellevue. And I was told by one of the people at Pastor Slattery's church that um, he has inspired... Many other men of God around the country to start their own churches now, and and they're and because they see that he has a backbone, and they see that, and I, I'm like, praise the Lord! I said that's awesome, and evidently there's it's it's a growing movement. I mean, he's getting right now uh, probably 12 to 1,300 downloads a week off his site. I'm getting about 1,200 downloads a week, and I praise the Lord for that. So. These sites are really starting to impact some people out there. Now, how long we're gonna, they're going to let me preach like this on sermons audio, I don't know. That's up to the Lord, but I pray it's you know a long time. Going back to this article, to uh, Hosea, or to the Bible, Hosea 2, and then it says, verse 7, And she shall follow after her lovers, but she shall not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but shall not find them. This is part of the hedging her way up with thorns. And making a wall that she's not going to find her past. This is part of what he's doing to this adulterous woman. Then it says, Then sh- shall she say, I will go and return to my first husband, for then it was better with me than now. So in other words, God's bringing adversity into this this woman's life, in order for her to get her eyes opened. Which is typically the reason God will bring adversity into people's lives. Whether they choose to accept that is up to them, because God gives us a free will. I mean, the prodigal son's a great example of that. He had to get, you know, basically to the bottom of the hog pen before his eyes finally got opened. If he would have just continued there in in, in his riches and, and, and prospered in that way, do you think he ever would have repented in and of himself? The only way 99% of the people out there, or 99.9% of the people, ever repent of anything is if things get really nasty bad. That's why what's coming to America is probably going to be unlike anything the world's ever known. Because this, the church here is so lukewarm, so delusional, so blind, and yet they think they're in need of nothing, as the Bible says in Revelation 3. Yet they're blind, naked, wretched, weak. They don't even see it. So it's going to take an extra gigantic dose to wake the church up here. And, not, and most people aren't going to be woke. They're gonna, their hearts are going to be hardened. Their consciences have already been seared with a hot iron. They've already given heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils as it talks about in 1 uh, Timothy 1. It's already been done. And that's why the Bible says in 2 Thessalonians 3 that God shall send the strong delusion that they would all believe a lie and that they might all be damned who received not the love of the truth. See, God's going to be doing this. Because he's sick and tired and fed up with the sin and the iniquity that's abounding. And yet, in the churches, for the most part, they're silent on so many of these issues. Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil. And that's what the churches do, for the most part. They call good evil and evil. Now, I'm not talking about everything. But I'm talking about a lot of things like, you know, like Christian rock like the Bible version issue, like the 501c3 issue that I mentioned, like the sexual issues, things that are really major, things that are foundational to the church, and yet they don't even talk on it. So, and again, I've said this before, but it's not so much many times what they're saying, it's what they're not saying that is upsetting and grievous to the Lord. So if we go back to this, it says, verse 8, For she shall know... That I gave her the corn and the wine and the oil and multiplied her silver and gold, which they prepared for Baal. Corn, the wine, and the oil. That's a Masonic ritual. Did you know that? I have an email on this that we get into this that relates to George Washington. It's actually a Masonic ritual to Baal. That's why it says here that they were preparing the corn, the wine, and the oil, and the silver and the gold, which they prepared for Baal. This was, a, this was an ancient rite of, um, an, an ancient pagan rite that they actually did to Baal. In other words, what happened is the Lord let her have it her way for a time. The Lord will typically do that. He'll let you have it. If you want to live like the devil, well, he'll let you have it your way for a time. Now, some people live like the devil their whole life and they, and they just die and they fall into hell. Somebody that actually has a calling on their life, typically the Lord will let them have it their way for a time. But the Lord will bring you to a point, though, where judgment comes, and hopefully you'll wake up. But the Bible does say many are called, but few are chosen. So that's no guarantee either. Okay? You just can't live like the devil your whole life and say, well, I said this little prayer, and I accepted Jesus into my heart, and live like the devil... And expect to go to heaven. There should be evidence of your salvation, like the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, goodness, faith, temperance. These types of things should be evident in your life. And if you're living like the devil, as a born-again Christian, the Bible says, Whom the Lord loveth, he also chasteneth. And if you be without chastisement, ye are bastards. Now, a bastard is an illegitimate son. So if you say you're a born-again Christian, and you're living like the devil, and you're living like the devil, and you've been doing this, and there's no conviction in your life, and God's letting you get away with it, how are you His kid? How is that the case? There's got to be chastisement on your life. And if you are really saved, there should be evidence of the fruit of the Spirit. That's a whole other subject, but that's just a little side note there. Very important side note. So God let her have it her way for a time until he brought the famine into her life in order to wake this adulterous woman up. Verse 9. Therefore will I return and take away my corn in the time thereof. This is the famine. And my wine in the season thereof. And will recover my wool and my flax given to cover her nakedness. So he's going to put her to shame in front of everybody. And now will I discover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers and none shall deliver her out of mine hand. I will also cause her myrrh to cease. Myrrh is like, you know, joyful, frivolous happiness type of thing. I will cause her myrrh to to cease, her feast days and her new moons, and her Sabbaths and her solemn feasts. All that's going to be gone. And I will destroy her vines and her fig trees, whereof she, she has set. Now remember, also, the Bible says judgment must begin at the house of the Lord. That's what's coming. For the most part. To America. And I do believe there's probably a remnant in these apostate churches that are going to get woke up. You know, I don't think it's just going to be so God can destroy every single person in the apostate. I don't think that. I think there's going to be a remnant that wakes up and prays the Lord. They need to wake up. And I'm not saying this like I think I'm Mr. Sinless Perfection and I've got everything figured out and I'm the only one that, you know, I'm not saying that. But I've come out of all this and now I see it very clearly because I've come out. See, if you're within it, you're not going to see this until you come out fully and clearly. Wherefore, come out from among her and be separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. There's so much unclean things that's going on in the, in the modern-day 501c3 churches. How can you be a part of that church and not touch the unclean thing? Then it says in verse 12 and I will destroy her vines and her fig trees, whereof she has said, these are my rewards that my lovers have given me, and I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall eat them. So he's going he's to basically destroy her, her things. But she's going to still think, these are my rewards that my lovers have given to me. This whorish harlot woman basically thinks that, that all these things she's gotten, she's earned. Evidently she's earned them on her back. These are my rewards that my lovers have given me? How delusional! But there's a lot of... I, I've seen a lot of women like this. They feel that they're entitled to, this, to these things. These, these are their rewards. Verse 13, And I will visit upon her the days of Balaam. Wherein she burned incense to them, and she decked herself with her earrings and her jewels, Balaam being uh, one of the chief pagan deities, or Baal. She decked herself with earrings and with jewels, and she went after her lovers, and, forget me, saith the Lord. Now, in verse 14, this is where things start to change. Verse 14 says, Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness, and speak comfortably unto her, after he's judged her. Now, at this point, He's judged her. Her life is total misery. But now God can deal with her because now she's been humbled. See, without humility, it's impossible to please God. You just can't do it. You cannot go to before God proudly. can't do it. What does this also imply? I guarantee you she had a healthy dose of fear of God at this point in her life. If she had all this stuff happen to her, all these things were stripped from her, she's going to be humble before the Lord. The fear of God's going to be on her. We're going to talk a lot about that more. So it says, therefore I will lure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak comfortably unto her. There's going to be a time now where God actually shows mercy to her. Praise God, it's mercy in this life where she could be shown mercy. Because if she continued in this sin, she's going to die and split hell wide open. Verse 15, and I will give her... Here's the whole crux of everything we're going to be talking about today. And I will give her vineyards from thence and the valley of Acor for a door of hope. And she shall sing there, as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up out of the land of Egypt. The valley of Acre, for a door of hope, what is that? Well, we're going to talk about that today. The word acor means trouble. And there was a man named Akin that they named the valley after. His name was Troubler. Akin means Troubler. Well, how could the Valley of Trouble be a door of hope? Well, that's what we're going we're to talk about. And I first heard this sermon from, from John Weaver at Okeechobee uh, Independent Fundamental uh, Baptist Church Conference that I attended. And um, it, was a lot of, it was a lot of confirmation to me. And we're going to get into my testimony a little bit later. But let's go and see what, this, what, what happened in this Valley of Acor first. So let's go to Joshua 6. Joshua 6, verse 17. I'm just going to hit the high points here. Um, because we got a lot of material to cover. I'd like to get two studies done today, but I don't know if it's going to happen here. So we're just kind of, as the Lord leads here... Okay, so Joshua six verse seventeen. Okay, here we go, and this is in regard to the the Israelites going in to possess Jericho. Okay, this is when they first after they first entered into the Promised Land, and God's giving them instructions on what you do when you go to Jericho. Okay, and we're just going to hit the high points here. But, um, it says in verse 17, And the city, meaning Jericho, shall be accursed, even it and all that are therein, to the Lord. Only Rahab the harlot shall live, because she was the one that took in the spies, and basically made a deal with them, saying, listen, you know, you spied out the city, I've hid you, now, you know, don't kill me and my family. That was the deal that was made. So only Rahab the harlot shall live. She and all that are within her house, because she hid the messengers that we sent. Verse 18. And ye, in any wise, keep yourselves from the accursed thing. Now this is what God's telling the Israelites when they go into the city, keep yourself from the accursed thing. Lest ye make yourselves accursed. What were these accursed things? Well, um, here, well, basically anything in the city was was considered accursed. As far as you taking it for in into your possession. That was a no no. Okay? Sin had so permeated that city that essentially everything in it was 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 had become accursed. And if you took that as a possession for yourself, you yourself would fall under a curse. And then it says, Okay, so verse 18, and ye in any wise keep yourselves from the accursed thing, lest ye make yourselves accursed. When you take up the accursed thing and make the camp of Israel a curse and trouble it. So it wasn't just going to affect whoever took the accursed thing. It was going to affect the whole camp of Israel. And then um, we go to chapter 7, one, one chapter up here, verse 1. But the children of Israel committed a trespass in the accursed thing. For Akin, remember I said Akin, because we talked about the valley of Achor and Hosea. For Akin, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took of the accursed thing, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against the children of Israel. See, he didn't just get mad at Achan; he got mad at the, whole, at the whole camp. A little leaven, leaven at the whole lump. That's what we're dealing with here, that whole concept. Verse 2, And Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai which is beside Beth-haven on the east side of Bethel, and spake unto them, saying, Go up and view the country. And the men went up and viewed Ai. And they returned to Joshua, and said unto him, Let not all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and smite Ai, and make not all the people to labor thither, for they are but a few. So in other words, they were just basically kind of taking Ai pretty lightly. Now this is the first, after the first battle, after they, after the wells of Jericho had already, already fallen. So they were probably feeling pretty, you know, confident. <laughs> after they just saw what God did. You know. So, verse 4. So there went thither of people, about 3,000 men, and they fled before the men of Ai. So here's a concept. When there's sin present in the camp, here's, here's the biblical concept. When sin is present in the camp, Expect defeat. That's what happened. They had a much superior army. There was nothing special about AI, but the sin, the little leaven that had leavened the whole lump in Israel, because Achan took of the accursed thing, and we're going to talk about what he did in a second. They were defeated. They lost courage. This is what happens when we have particularly unconfessed sin in our life. So much of the time, We get afraid. We get afraid of what? The situation. Fear of man. Now the Bible says the fear of man bringeth a snare. But the fear of God is, you know, the beginning of knowledge, the beginning of wisdom, the beginning of understanding. The angel of the Lord encampeth around about them that fear God. There's all these blessings connected with the fear of God. We're going to talk about that more. But this is what happens. So in verse 5 it says, And the men of Ai smote of them about thirty and six men. For they chased them from before the gate, even unto Shibaram, and smote them in the going down. Wherefore the hearts of the people melted and became as water. And Joshua rent his clothes and fell to the earth upon his face before the ark of the Lord, even until eventide. He and the elders of Israel and put dust upon their heads. So what Joshua did was the correct function. He humbled himself before God when they were defeated, because he wanted to know what happened. Even though he hadn't done anything, nor the elders but they had to bear the consequences of Achan's sin. Thirty-six people died as a result of this of this one thing he did. And you think of all the sin that's in the so-called pseudo... All the accursed things that the, that the pseudo-Christian church has brought into them. We're How could you even compare that, you know, in America to, to, to this one thing? So if we go then... Now let's go to verse 10. And the Lord said unto Joshua, Get get thee up, wherefore liest thou upon thy face? Israel hath sinned, and they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them, for they have even taken of the accursed thing. See, he's blaming Israel corporately for Achan's sin. And again, you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and you see how that little leaven leavens the whole lump. If you have somebody in your congregation that's participating in gross, blatant sin, whether you know about it or not, it's going to affect the congregation. I'm sorry. This is the whole concept of this, and this is very rarely taught in churches. Well, how could they? I mean, the, the church was, was, I mean, sin is the is the modern day church, it's just about foundation anymore. Then it says, they have taken the cursed thing, and I have, and also stolen, and dissembled also, and they have put it even among their own stuff. Therefore, the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies. Now, this is kind of, in a way, a spiritual self-checkup for a Christian. Do you feel that you can't stand before your enemies? See, the Bible says, I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. And it's not about you being Mr. Big and Bad. It's about Christ working through you, the hope of glory, the Holy Spirit working through you, His angelic force aiding you if need be, you having the full armor of God on, you speaking the word of God as the sword of the Spirit. The Bible says, It's not my word like as a fire, saith the Lord, and like a hammer that breaketh the rock in pieces. The faith that you have inside you, without faith it is impossible to please God. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Well, if you don't know what the Word of God is, how are you going to get faith? So, you know, and, and I was I was with a, uh, a man recently, a brother, and he... I love this man. Truly, I do. But... we were talking about these types of subjects, and yet he doesn't really feel... That he says, well, the King James Bible is the best version, but there's other versions out there that are better and these types of things. The thing about that whole concept is if you believe that, and the sword of the Spirit is the word of God, and the Bible says, Forever, O Lord, thy words are settled in heaven. And it says, Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. And thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee, meaning against God. And this is Psalm 119. And then it says in Psalm 119, verse 105, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And then it says in Psalm 12, verse 6 and 7, that the words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in the furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. Well, if you don't believe what you hold in your hand is the Word of God, how do you fight? You know the only offensive weapon given in the full armor of God is the sword of the Spirit. Truly, overtly offensive. Yes, you could use a shield, I guess, as an offensive weapon. But the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. How did... Jesus Christ deal with the devil in the wilderness. When he confronted, you know, essentially the king of all devils, Satan himself, how did he deal with him? All it is, quote scripture. Well, hold on. Are we any better than him? He is the word. He was the incarnate word. Well, how do you know that? Because it says, in the beginning was the word. This is John 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The same in the beginning was God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus Christ is the creator of the universe. And he was the incarnate word that was incarnated into human form and and came and paid our sin debt on the cross. And through his shed blood, his death, burial, and resurrection paid our sin debt and gave us opportunity in order to be saved children of God. For ye are saved by grace, through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Ephesians 2.8 and 9. If you don't believe what you hold in your hand is the word of God, how do you fight? I really think it's that serious. And I kind of felt sorry for him. I'm going to try to get him some more information. But the battles that we have ahead are Supernatural. We battle not against flesh and blood, and we're going to talk about this, but against princes, principalities, rulers of wickedness in high places. That's where our true battle is. Even when we even when we deal with, with a wicked, evil person, why is that person evil and wicked? For the most part, it's because they're probably demonically possessed to the toenails. Well, how do you deal with evil entities? Do you beat the person up? What's that gonna to do to the demons? Probably strengthen them. You know? You deal with these issues through prayer, and that's why we're going to be talking about imprecatory prayers today. But it's—it's it's like I said before when we started this. This is a, this is a total mindset. This is this is you have to know your foundation as well, because the Bible says in Proverbs eleven verse three. If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? Not, was that Proverbs or Psalms? Psalms. If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? So if our foundation's destroyed, what can we do? The Word of God is our foundation. So I think it's that important. And again, um, I'll get you the information on the King James Bible if you email me and request that. So, going back to to Joshua, God says to them, but therefore... This is verse 12, uh, 7 verse 12. Therefore, the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies. Why? Because there was sin in the camp. Because they had taken of the accursed thing. And again, that's why I said this is kind of a little spiritual self-checkup. Do you feel as though you can't stand before your enemies, no matter what happens? Well, you know, you need to do a spiritual self-checkup here. Because if you've got a lot of sin in your life, you won't be able to stand before them. You will be defeated, guaranteed. How can God be with you? When you're doing things that are against God. Now, I don't mean living in sinless perfection here. But have you went to them and confessed your sin and truly wanted to repent? Had that in your heart? But turned their backs before their enemies because they were cursed. God considered the whole camp a curse just because Achan had taken this one thing. That's why it's important what church you're in. <laughs> Think about that. What if you're in a church... And guaranteed, if it's a 501c3, non-King James reading, lukewarm church, there's tons of sin there. Well, then, do you think you might be actually bringing a curse on yourself by being within those four walls every week? Well, I'm just going to try to change it from within. It's not going to happen. The foundation's already been corrupted. Totally corrupted. You can't change it from the... This is why I finally ended up doing what I'm doing here on the internet. Because I am not subject to any of these constraints that I was under before. I call this a, a Bible study and current event study. I'm not, I'm not, I, I don't place myself under those restrictions. And it's probably the best thing I've ever done since I've been a Christian. It's coming out of that mess. Then it says, neither will I be with you anymore except you destroy the accursed thing from among you. God says, I'm not even going to be with you if you don't destroy this accursed thing. It's pretty strong strong language there. From the Lord. Um, thank you. So we go a little bit further here. Verse 19. Let's skip to verse 19. And Joshua said unto Achan, My son, give I pray thee glory to the Lord, God of Israel, and make confession unto him. Now they had finally tracked down Achan. They finally found out who was the guy that brought the sin into the camp. And then... Joshua says, you know, make confession unto him, unto God, and tell now what thou hast done, hide it not from me. And Achan answered Joshua and said, Indeed I have sinned against the Lord, God of Israel, and thus and thus have I done. When I saw among the spoils, spoils. this is when they went into Jericho, when the, after the walls fell, when I saw among the spoils a goodly Babylonish garment, and two hundred shekels of silver, and a wedge of gold of fifty shekels weight. Then I coveted them. Now that's breaking one of the Ten Commandments as well, coveting. Lusting for something. Bible said it equates coveting and lusting together. Okay. I coveted them, and I took them. And behold, they are hid in the earth, in the midst of the tent, and the silver under it. So Joshua sent messengers... And they ran under the tent, and behold, it was, it was hidden his tent and the silver under it. Now, for the modern day Christian, they're, they're pretty good at hiding sin, as, as an example of this thing. The modern day Christian is pretty adept at hiding sin. And most of the time, the churches that they're going to aren't even preaching on sin, so they don't even get the conviction that it is sin. And they're not reading their Bible, and if they are, if they are reading their Bible, it's some perverted version. So how are they going to get any conviction from the Holy Spirit? If the Holy Spirit even lives inside them, which it probably doesn't, because they're probably not even saved. You see the scenario here? It's kind of a lose-lose scenario. Oh yeah, you get to live like the devil in this life, but what does that compare to eternity in hell? So, we go further here. And again, this is another thing. This sin that he brought in the camp hurt everyone around him affected the whole camp of Israel in a very negative way. Every single one of them had affected. Not only the ones that died, but all the others that basically lost courage and their their hearts melted it talked about. You know? But a lot of this happened if you think about it, if you boil down, why did Achan do this? Why okay, he lusted. But what was there a lack of in his life that caused him To make this decision. Now, I'm not saying this because I think I'm Mr. Perfect. Okay, I'm not. Trust me. Because I need to work on this and we all need to work on this. But what it ultimately boiled down to was there was a lack of fear of God in his life that caused him... Because if there was enough fear of God in his life, he wouldn't have taken that stuff. He wouldn't have taken the gold and the silver and the the garment. He wouldn't have done it. Because he would have feared God too much. This is a good example for all of our lives, including me. I'm preaching to me today as much as I am to anyone else. Sometimes I get emails from people and they don't listen to my whole sermons. They say, oh, you're sanctimonious And this. Now, this is very, very much not the norm. The vast majority, the feedback I'm getting is totally positive. The vast majority. I would say... 1 out of 15, maybe, is negative. And so i'm I'm grateful for that because if all I ever got was negative feedback, <laughs> it'd be kind of rough i I'd still keep going you know, but this isn't about me thinking that you know I've got all this mastered or anything, or I'm preaching down to you because I'm holier than thou. I had a lady email me last night in regard to the Israel issue, and she was, you know, you've got a long way to go. You know, I, I wish she would have said, you got a long way to go sport. That would have been even better, if she had sport in there, you know, like, you know, little guy. You don't know what you're talking, you know, and it was a woman that said, well, I first started listening to you, and I really like what you, but now you, you... see, I sent out this email yesterday on Israel, and it, and it had um the, uh, Condoleezza Rice and, these devils at this UN meeting, and they were talking about splitting up Israel into into more and more parts, which I think is an abomination in God's size. Sight splitting up this land, giving it to the Arabs. Well, she took that that I was like pro-Israel, and I think everything they're doing's wonderful there, and I think they're all bound for heaven just because they're they're Jews. That's kind of the impression I got. <laughs> like, boy, you, I said that was a sanctimonious post. You really read into into that something that wasn't even there. We have to have balance with everything in Scripture, whether we're talking about Israel, whether we're doing this. And I I quoted her a whole bunch of verses, but um, getting back to this this article, to, to the Bible here, in verse 22 it says, So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran unto the tent, and behold, it was hid in his tent, and the silver under it. And they took them out of the midst of the tent, and brought them unto Joshua, and unto all the children of Israel, and laid them out before the Lord. Now this is what had been stolen from Jericho, or had been taken. And Joshua and all of Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver, and the garment, and the wedge of gold, and his sons, and his daughters. Now, let, let's go back real quick here to verse to the previous chapter, chapter 6, verse 19. When God said, this was right before he said, don't take up the accursed thing, lest you make yourselves accursed. Then it says in verse 19, Joshua 6, verse 19, it says, But all the silver and the gold and the vessels of brass and iron are consecrated unto the Lord. They shall come into the treasury of the Lord. So that was going to be consecrated and given to the Lord. So in other words, what he took, other than the Babylonian garment, should have been consecrated unto God. See, God can take something that's cursed and make it uncursed. He's perfectly capable of breaking a curse off something. But all of that was to be given to the Lord. They were going to get spoils in other cities anyway. It wasn't like this was the only place God was going to give them, let's say, where the Bible talks about the wealth of the wicked is laid up for the righteous. This wasn't the only city where they were going to get, you know, the spoils of the city. But see, God demanded their total obedience in this one place. And it was the first city they took. If you think about it. Now they were going to get, like I said, they were going to get spoils in other cities. But this one place, you weren't to take anything, and everything that was of gold, silver, these other things that were mentioned, were to be consecrated unto the Lord. That was the way it is. It's his rule book, not ours. Okay, so that was the, the, the essentially, the, because God didn't say that in every city. You can't take anything out of the city. He didn't say that. This was one of the, um, more like an exception to the rule, really. But the evilness and the wickedness that was going on in Jericho was so great and so pervasive that essentially everything had been cursed. That's why he didn't want them in and of themselves to take of these things. So then we go further here. In Joshua, verse 24, in Joshua 8 now, or no, Joshua 7, verse 24, In Joshua and all of Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah. And the silver, and the garment, and the wedge of gold, and his sons, and his daughters, and his oxen, and his asses, and his sheep, and his tent, and all that he had, and brought them unto the valley of Achor. Oh, me. Didn't we just talk about the valley of Achor back in Hosea chapter 2, where God said to the adulterous wife, essentially adulterous Israel, or adulterous Gomer, because that Gomer was a type of Israel that had turned their back and committed adultery on God. That was a type in the Bible. Didn't we just talk about the Valley of Achor then where God said, I'll give you the Valley of Achor for a what? For a door of hope? But hold on. What, do we, what happened in Valley of Achor? Well, let's see. Joshua said, Why hast thou troubled us? The Lord shall trouble thee this day. And all Israel stoned him with stones and burned them with fire, after they had stoned them with stones. Them? Who's, who's them? Everything he had. His sons, his daughters, everything. I don't know, maybe, that doesn't really mention his wife here. Achan, the son of Zerah, silver, his sons and his daughters, his oxen, his asses, his sheep, his tent, everything. They stoned with stones, burned them with fire. How much more of a, of a harsh punishment could you get than that? Oh, that doesn't sound like the God of love I serve. Yeah, that doesn't sound like Joel Osteen's God. Smiley Joe. Mr. Stadium Boy with his big globe twirling around. Oh, I'm just jealous. I'm sorry. Sorry, you got me. No. This isn't the God that's being preached. in. See, God's a God of balance. We can't just put God... Yes, He's a God of love. Yes, I agree with that. But He's also a God of judgment. He's a God of balance. The scales of justice? You, you know how he always says in Proverbs when you read it that God abhors unjust scales and balances? He keeps saying it over and over and over again. Well, what does that apply to? Just the marketplace? No. He's a God of justice. He hates he hates unjust scales and balances everywhere. Everywhere. Whether it's in the justice system, whether it's in how children are treated, or a widow is treated, or, 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 or somebody is treated... He ha- I hate that too. Aren't we supposed to abhor evil? Well, when evil abounds and, and, and evil prevail, or seemingly prevails, that's unjust. That's an unjust scale and balance. That evil needs to be judged. It needs to be judged. And that's what's being done here. Evil's being judged. Now again, this is God's rule book, not mine. This is what had to happen evidently. They were taken to the valley of Achor... Him and his family and all his possessions were stoned and burned. And then in verse 26, And they raised over him a great heap of stones unto this day. So the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger. Oh, what was the result of all this? What was the ultimate result? Why did they have to go through all this? So God would turn from the fierceness of his anger. Wherefore, the name of that place unto this day, wherefore, the name of that place was called the valley of Acor unto this day. This is, a, this is an example of God's anger towards sin. But, it was much better this happened than God, let's say God never said anything to them. You think they could have taken the rest of the promised land? They couldn't have. Let's say, well, I don't want to do this to Achan and his family, that's really mean. They would have been powerless to go any further into the promised land and do anything. They wouldn't have been. They would have been totally hindered the whole time. It was more merciful for God to tell them th- to do this and for them to act upon this and for God to turn from the fierceness of His anger and for them to be able to go and to possess the promised land and for that curse to be lifted off the whole sum of Israel. Wasn't that more merciful? Well, in the Valley of Achor, Akin was judged. Akin, whose name means trouble, troubler. And A- in the Valley of Achor, which means Trouble. The valley of trouble. Judgment. Here's the the key. Judgment. God's judgment and deliverance of Israel, in this case, went hand in hand. Well, hold on. Isn't the God the same today, yesterday, and forever? I am the Lord God, I changeth not. That's what he says. Well, how could that be? How could judgment and deliverance go hand? Well, didn't he tell adulterous Israel, or Gomer, and Hosea, that I will give thee the valley of Achor, where Akin was judged, which is always associated with judgment, the valley of Achor, for a door of hope? See, judgment of sin is a born-again believer's door of hope. You want hope? A lot of people don't have any hope. They think, oh Lord, I'm just going to die in this massively terrible way, even as a born-again Christian. But see, God's judgment is our door of hope. And it's proven right here. That's why He tells them, I will give you the Valley of Acre for a door of hope. So, if we go a little bit further... Our door of hope is the judgment of God. Judgment is not our enemy, but it's actually our friend. How many people have a hold of this concept? It's not taught in the churches. Judgment isn't our enemy in this life, it's our friend. Even when our own sins judged. Was it more merciful for God to to take the prodigal son into the hog pen? And have it go really, really not his way? (laughs) And that's an understatement but then for him to get right and come back to the Father in this life, and not have to burn in hell forever? What was more merciful? See, this is the concept we don't have, and this is why we're going to talk about imprecatory prayers today. I said all that to say what we're going to now um, get into later, but I'm really trying to set the stage here, point by point by point. Now, this subject is near and dear to me, and I'm going to give my testimony a little bit about this. I'm not going to give it quite yet. I'm going to go a little bit further, set the stage a little bit more, with some more scriptures. So let's next, let's go to Isaiah 65, verse 10. Isaiah 65, verse 10. We're just going to be jumping from scripture to scripture today. This is going to be purely almost all scripture. Which, praise the Lord. Uh, Let's see here. Isaiah 65, verse 10. And it says, verse 10, And Sharon shall be a fold of the flocks. Fold of flocks. And the valley of Acor, a place for the herds to lie down in. And for my people that have sought me. Wow. Now, just as a little side note here, Jesus Christ is the rose of Sharon, and he's the lily of the valley. That's in the Song of Solomon. Type, it's a type, okay? But it says, verse 10, let's read this again. And Sharon shall be a fold of the flocks. And the valley of Achor, now again, this is where God talks about giving the valley of Achor for a door of hope. This is where Akin was judged. Because Akin's sin was judged in the valley of Achor, all the Israelites were able to actually then, that was their door to go into the promised land and to take possession of it. Pretty major, if you think about that. That was the door. And, and if they hadn't have done that, that door would have been shut, and they would have went no further. They probably would have retreated back, <laughs> you know, into the wilderness. And roam there another 40 years. I don't know. In the Valley of Acor, a place for the herds to lie down in. For my people have sought me. These herds are representative of like the sheep. And God is the good shepherd. Jesus Christ is the good shepherd, isn't he? And we are his sheep. The valley of Acor, a place for the herds to lie down in. For my people that have sought me. So he's equating his people with the herds, with the flock, with the sheep. As Jesus Christ is the Good Shepherd. And he's saying here that the Valley of Acor will be a place that they can lie down in. What is that, what is that representative? What does that typify? That typifies a place where God brought severe judgment on an individual sin that gave in the Valley of Acor, But that's the actual place he's saying. This is where the herds are going to lie down in. For my people that have sought me. See, most people don't really seek God. They just want the brook cream religion, a little dabble, do ya? They're not seeking the Lord. They want the warm and fuzzy stuff. They want the smiley Joel Olstein. They want to be told that they're not living in sin, and that God loves them any way they are. Come one, come all. I'm not saying He doesn't love you any way you are, but you know, in order to get saved, you need to repent and turn from that sin. But see, that's not what's preached because it doesn't make the money. It doesn't keep the 501c3 nonprofit organization rolling. The 501c3 nonprofit organization tax exempt so I can write it off on my taxes. What's your motivation for giving? And I, you know, I said that earlier. I said, you know, if you're in with, within the four walls of one of these entities, these corporate entities that's in apostasy, don't think it's not affecting you spiritually. Don't think that the sin is that, that's in that camp is not affecting you spiritually in a horrific way. Don't think it's not blinding you in certain areas, or in huge areas. It has to. It has to blind you. You have no choice but for it to blind you. Well, I'm not blind doesn't matter if you think that. The Bible says all the ways of a man are clean in his own eyes. But the Lord weigheth the spirits. I believe that's Proverbs 16, verse 3. See, all the ways of a man tend to be clean in their own eyes. Well, I'm a good person. But see, the Lord's the one that weigheth our actions and our motivations and these types of things. So if you're going to one of these places, what if you're putting money into it? What if that's where you're sowing your your seed. You're putting your, your, your money into that same corporate entity that's, an, that's probably a, a flat out abomination in God's eyes. These are things to think about. We're to be good stewards of what God's given us. So, a lot of kind of things to think about here today. Let's go now to Acts. Chapter 5, verse 1. So, Acts chapter 5, verse 1. But a certain man named Ananias, with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession, and kept back part of the price, his wife also being privy to it. In other words, she knew about it, and they kept back a part of the price, and bought, and brought a certain part, and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost? Now, he's basically saying here, Satan filled his heart to lie to the Holy Ghost. And to keep back part of the price of the land. In other words, I guess they had, you know, it wasn't accurate, the, the figure that they gave them. And they kept back part of it, acting as though they were giving all of it, yet they kept back a nice chunk for themselves. Okay, so this is why he says this. Verse 4, while it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. And it wasn't so much that, that I think God required every single bit of it, unless that's what God clearly showed them. It was the fact that they lied about it. And, and this is what happens a lot in church. They lie about things, or they'll do things in order to be seen of men. And Jesus said, then verily you have your reward. But when we give alms, when we give preferably and ideally, if it be possible, not, let not your right hand know what your left hand's doing. How do you do that and give to a 501c3 entity so you can write it off on your taxes? Number one, what's your motivation? Number two, everybody knows about it. In the church, Typically. And many times those are the same people that are treated preferentially because they give the most. Oh, I've been there. And my motivation for giving to those types of organizations before I learned this information wasn't so I could be seen of men, but I know you are treated better, differently. No doubt about it. That's an abomination to God. God's no respecter of persons. He talked about, Jesus said, that the one rich man that came and gave all this money, which was way more than what the widow gave, she gave the widow's might. this is there, but the widow gave more than him in God's eyes, because it was more of a percentage-wise, of it was everything she had. (laughs) Yet the rich man only gave a portion. So see, God sees things differently than we do. So let's go a a little bit further here. And I, Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost. And great fear came upon all them that heard these things. Oh my. See, back when the, first church, the, the church first started, I think that the Holy Spirit was working at such a higher degree than it is in the average church now. But yet, the, the price for that was that... I guess the analogy would be, is if you were climbing a mountain and you were higher up on a mountain, if you fell from a higher level on the mountain, you'd get hurt worse. The closer you are to God, the more responsible he'll, He's going to hold you for your actions. To whom much is given, much is required. The Bible talks about that. If you're super, super, super close with God, and then you commit this really, really grievous sin, the punishment is probably going to be greater than for some little baby Christian that just got saved, that maybe partly didn't know better. I think that's the concept we're talking about here because this guy dies. But this is a guy that most likely had seen Jesus Christ. He had seen the miracles of the apostles. He had had totally witnessed all. He was at a very, very, very high accountability level. And then it says, And the young man arose, wound him up, and carried him out, and buried him. And it was about the space of three hours after when his wife, not knowing what was done, came in. And Peter answered unto her, Tell me whether ye sold the land for so much. And she said, Yea, for so much. Then Peter said unto her, How is it that ye have agreed together to tempt the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of them which have buried thy husband are at the door, and shall carry thee out. Then she fell straightway at his feet, and yielded up the ghost. And the young men came in, and found her dead, and carried her forth, buried her, and buried her by her husband. Verse 11. What's the fruit of all this? And great fear came upon all the church. That's what we need today. We need fear of God on the church. Oh, I don't like that. Well, would you rather burn in hell for eternity and experience fear of the Lord there? Or would it be better if fear of the Lord came on you in this lifetime, and you got right? Because trust me, if fear of the Lord comes on you, most likely you're going to get right. Or you're going to get way more right than you were. Pardon my English. And we're going to talk about fear of the Lord here in a little bit. Great fear came upon all the church, and upon as many as heard these things. What was the fruit of this? Fear of God. Was it the fear of man? Fear of man bringeth a snare. Mm-mm. No, this was fear of God. If you will pray for the fear of God in your life, I am telling you, if there was any one thing that you could possibly pray for after you get saved, pray for the fear of God in your life and in your family's life. Because the fear of God takes care of so many things. There's so many things that you might normally do that if you have the fear of God resting on you, you won't do them. I'm telling you, it just about takes care of more things than anything that I know of. And yet it's totally never preached in the churches. Oh, God's a God of love. He's the big guy in the sky. He's not going to hurt anybody. Give me a break! Could you imagine if this kind of stuff started happening in the churches today? I think we're coming back to it. Neta just brought up a good point here. If we go back the chapter before Ananias and Sapphira, and this is so much a motivation in today's modern day churches. Verse thirty-six. This is Acts chapter five or Acts chapter four, verse thirty-six, and and Josephs who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, which is being interpreted the son of consolation, a Levite, and of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So see, essentially what it's looking like here is, is now we've got to have this one-upsmanship, which goes on a lot in the church as well. Bless God, that guy Barnabas there, he gave all this land... He had this land. He sold. He brought the money. Laid it all at the apostles' feet. Evidently, he didn't keep back anything. Well, Ananias and Sapphira desired that same praise. They saw. They probably saw him being looked upon very highly in the church, and and rightly so. He didn't do it for that motivation, obviously. But you know, something. You know, he was honored, and, and um, for what he did. They wanted that same praise, but they didn't have it in their heart even though they wanted to appear as though they had done the exact same thing, that they gave the whole price. They didn't have that in their heart. They kept back a, pro- a part of it, and lied about it. And this was the punishment. They both died. So we go to verse 12. So what's what's the fruit of this? What is the fruit of the fear of the Lord? What is the fruit of God's judgment? Isn't this the Valley of Achor for a door of hope? Hold on. When Akin was judged in the Valley of Achor, and Sin was in the camp... And it was purged. Didn't it allow all of Israel go to go into the promised land? Wasn't the valley of Achor actually their door of hope? Sure was. Wasn't it the same way here? He judged Ananias and Sapphira. They die. Great fear falls on the camp. And then verse 12 says, And by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people. Sounds like a good thing to me. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Whoa! Now hold on. Let me get this straight. Two people died. They're judged. For their sin. That leaven's purged. Great fear falls upon the camp. And upon all of them that heard these things. That was That's saved and unsaved. I wonder how many people got saved. And by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people. Well, maybe when there's sin in the camp, it hinders that. Maybe, maybe when there's sin in the camp, God's power to manifest these types of things is hindered. Maybe when there's sin in the camp, the fear of God can't pervade either as well. And maybe when there's sin in the camp, you can't all be in one accord. They're all in one accord. Do you think that, that after Akin was stoned... That Israel was within one accord. Then, when they saw the, God's judgment on this one, per- you think the fear of God wasn't on them after they saw Achan, stone him and his whole family, everything, and then they were burnt. I would say that that produced a lot of fear of the Lord in in that. What it did is it put them in the proper mindset, Israel, to go in and take the rest of the promised land. It put them in the pro- the, the proper mindset, fear of God, the Valley of Acre for four door of hope. See, I view this like, you know, as a good thing. I view this as something that if we could get a hold of this in the church and corporately pray about these things, individually and corporately pray about these things, I mean, who knows what the Lord could do? I am the Lord, the God, the Bible says that I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? Then he says, call upon me and I will answer thee and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. In Isaiah, so this is a this is a, an amazing portion of Scripture. Let's go a little bit further. So they were in one accord, and the rest durst no man join himself to them. But the people magnified them, and the and the believers were both the more added to the Lord. Oh, what does that mean? A whole bunch of people got saved as a result of Ananias and Sapphira's judgment on this earth multitudes both of men and women. Oh, but we can't pray about, we can't talk about this stuff in the church because it'll hurt our donations. Whatever. You're only hurting yourself. In so much, this is verse 15, in so much that they brought forth the sick un- into the streets and laid them on, on beds and couches, that the least, the shadow of Peter passing by them, overshadow some of them. Now, I think this is part of where God, where Jesus says, even greater things you will do. I don't remember Jesus' shadow ever healing anybody. I'm not saying it couldn't happen, but he did say, greater things shall ye do. There came also a multitude out of the cities round about Jerusalem, bringing sick folks with them, which were vexed with unclean spirits, and they were healed every one see Benny Hinn he's you know I don't know what his percentage rate is but I know it's way down on the chart here I know he's lying about most of this stuff flat out but you know something in if it's truly coming from God it's gonna happen it's gonna happen is he healing everyone be I mean, that's it's kind of like the prophet, the word talks about Deuteronomy 18 how do you know if he's even if he's a man of God and his and his words are true if what he says doesn't come to pass, he wasn't sent of God. He wasn't hearing from God. They're supposed to be getting it right 100% of the time. It's the test of a prophet. Deuteronomy 18. Well, it says here, everyone were healed. At this time. Okay, so, all of this that we just read is fruit of Ananias and Sapphira being judged. The valley of Achor for a door of hope. You want some more confirmation? Let's go to Acts 12. Acts 12, verse 21. Acts 12, verse 21. And upon a day set Herod arrayed in royal apparel. King Herod here. Okay? And upon, at a set day, Herod arrayed in royal apparel... Set upon his throne and made an or, oration unto them. An oration would be like he spoke. An order is somebody that speaks. And the people gave a shout, saying, It is the voice of God, and not of a man. Oh, Lord have mercy. When I read that, I'm like, oh boy, this is not going to be pretty. Verse 23, And immediately the angel of the Lord smote him, who Herod, because he gave not God the glory. Why? Because he had no fear of God on him. If he really feared God, he'd give God the glory. And he was eaten of worms and gave up the ghost. Eaten of worms. Could you imagine, this guy's up there, can you imagine if this happened in today's day and age? Some guy goes up there, oh, it's the voice of God, not of man. And the, immediately the, the angel of the Lord smites him and he's, he's just consumed of worms right before your very eyes. You think that would get your attention? Oh, yeah. I I think that would be wonderful if that happened today. Not because I want the guy to go to hell, but do you know how many people, how much fear God would fall upon people? How many people would probably get right with God if they knew it was of God? How many people would ultimately end up getting saved? Isn't that what this is all about? A thousand years from now, what's going to matter? Well, really, ultimately, what's going to matter is who got saved and who didn't get saved. That's going to be the most important thing, because if you're burning in hell forever... You know, that's that's a pretty bad deal. Doesn't get much worse. So, then it says in verse 24, what was the, now what was the fruit? But the word of God grew and multiplied. So see, the fear of God produces this. This is what the fear of God produces. The word of God grew and multiplied. Sounds good to me. Want some more proof? Okay, let's go to Acts 19, verse 13. Because, you know, I think it's important we showed this in the New Testament. Because you could say, oh, this was just an Old Testament thing. That was when God was the God of judgment. Oh, is that so? Well, (laughs) this is after the church already got started. This was the church of Acts. Acts 19, verse 13. And certain of the vagabond Jews, exorcists, took upon them to call over them, which had evil spirits, the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, We adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul preacheth. Can you imagine? <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. Sounds like Benny in. Um... <laughs> Now, remember, the Jews were also in a different mindset. Because the Bible says, for the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after knowledge. Okay, the Jews were used to signs and wonders. That's the way God dealt with them in the wilderness. And, and, and you know, when he brought them out of Egypt, and all through these things. I mean, the walls of Jericho fallen. They were used to this. But then Jesus gets to a point in his ministry where he says, A wicked and, adulter- and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign but no sign shall be given then unto them but under the sign of Jonas. For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. That was the ultimate sign. The resurrection. Okay, the, the death, burial, and resurrection. And the fact that he was seen by thousands after he was supposedly laid to rest in the tomb. And that's a historical fact. So... These are some vagabond Jews, exorcists. What do we have today? To who to call themselves exorcist? Catholic priests. How how can Satan cast out Satan's? What I want to know. Oh, we perform this exorcist with our holy water. And show me show me holy water in the Bible. And we had our crucifixes with Jesus Christ on the cross. Still, show me that. How that's biblical i I'm sorry, I just don't find it I, I don't i I just don't find it i mean it's it's such a it's such a joke to me, but these guys were vagabond Jews calling themselves exorcists, and they took upon them to call over them, which had evil spirits, the name of the Lord Jesus saying, we adjure you in other words, they were trying to do exorcism by calling upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one that Paul preaches and yet they did not even know Jesus Christ. It doesn't work that way. You can't do it that way. <laughs> you have to have the Holy Spirit inside, living inside you first. And then it says, And there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jew, a chief, and chief of the priests, which did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are ye? <laughs> Can you imagine the evil spirit answering this way? <laughs> but he was actually—it was a true statement. <laughs> See, the evil spirits know who the men of God are. That's what it's—that's what this implies. Evil spirits know the men of God by name. A, 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 a Christian self-check—you could ask yourself—and I'm asking myself as much as I would anyone else—is would would my name be mentioned in hell in this way? It's just something to think about. Do the devils know you by name because of what you've done for the Lord or because of the power that emanates through you, not because in and of yourself, but because the Holy Spirit lives inside you, because you've yielded yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you crucified with Christ? And nevertheless, you do not live, but Christ lives within you. Galatians 2.20 So these are just Christian things we can ask ourselves. Verse sixteen, and the man in whom evil spirit, and the man in whom the evil spirit, and the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, and overcame them, and prevailed against them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Okay, so this is what happens when you try, you know, <laughs> to use Jesus Christ, and you're not even saved. Okay, these evil spirit, these evil spirits actually jumped on these guys, overcame them, and they fled out naked and wounded. How? That's pretty, pretty uh, uh, shameful. And this was known to all the Jews and the Greeks also dwelling at Ephesus. And the fear fell on them all. Here we go again with fear. Fear of God. And the name of the Lord was magnified. We'll see, when the fear of God falls on people, the name of the Lord's magnified. Because you get your priorities straight. See, fear of God brings your priorities... I mean, that's why I said the fear of God takes care of so many other things. Because it brings your priorities where they need to be so quickly. So quickly. (laughs) Because the fear of God, a true dose of fear of God will put you on your face before the Lord. And you will humble yourself before God. And you will realize your position toward the Lord in regard to, you know, what you are compared to Him. Great fear fell on them all. And then verse 18, And many that believed came and confessed and showed their deeds. They confessed, that means that they repented. And they showed their deeds. Many of them also, which use curious arts. This would be like the black arts. This would be like witchcraft, which is very prevalent today. The Christians would have to we have, probably have to bring all of their Harry Potter books and burn them. Among other things. Among their other curious art trinkets, which is never preached on in the churches either. We're bringing all kinds of things accursed into our house. Christian rock, man! All these things we're bringing into our house... Where we're bringing curses into, into our, into our, under our roof. That's a whole other lesson. Many of them also, which used curious arts, brought their books together and burned them before all men. And they counted the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. Which would be about, at the time when I wrote this, $300,000. That's a lot of witchcraft paraphernalia a lot of conjuring and in, in, in I am Newton whatever what was that I am Newton I don't know yeah well they uh they burned him this is what you should do with anything that you have do you realize that when they make a a lot of these uh, music CDs they're, and they're, Chick Chick has a whole um, comic book on this. It's called Spellbound. People in high level occult, particularly when they make rock music and I, I bet you this is done to, to the Christian rock. they actually will put spell. they will summon a one of the major deities of Satan's kingdom, I forget what his name is. it starts with an R to basically put a curse on the master recording and the master rec- from the master recording all the other CDs or DVDs or whatever are made from that and these are essentially cursed objects you're bringing into your house and in now oh now you're really getting off on le- and left field well do you believe that we battle not against flesh and blood but against princes principalities rulers of wickedness of hype high- do you think that they're not capable of cursing things This brings up a good point here. Doug just reminded me. I got an email this week from a guy. guy had been on my email list for a long time. I'm not going to mention any names. But this man basically wrote me. Now this, this is a guy that's been on my email list for years and years and years. The Bible says that when you see your brother overtaken in a fault, go to such an one in a spirit of meekness, lest thou also be tempted. Which is... For a long time, I was in the independent, fundamental, King James-only Baptist circles. I don't really associate myself with that because, to be quite honest with you, there was so... there's a lot of stuff going on within that movement that has to do with pride, arrogance, and one-upsmanship, and I'm better than you, and this type of thing. A lot of stuff that's not of the Lord. I think there's a lot of tenets of it that are very good. But I am more doing what I'm doing by myself... Um, So that I'm not subject, or or subjecting myself to these types of things. This guy basically told me in this email, that these emails that I put out in Harry Potter, that that it was just absolutely, totally trivial and useless. That all witchcraft is, is just a work of the flesh. That's it. It is nothing more than man... There's not... He basically implied that there's not even anything demonic of a spiritual nature, behind witchcraft. He said all these long-winded... And I'm paraphrasing here, but he said all these long-winded sermons I've done on Harry Potter are, are just, you know, nothing. They amount to nothing. And I, and I thought to myself, wow, I guess we're not supposed to reprove sin anymore. We're not supposed to mark them which cause division and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned, and avoid them. We're not supposed to reprove the unfruitful works of darkness anymore. We're not supposed to do this because we're destroyed for lack of knowledge. And all these people are bringing these accursed objects, some of them calling themselves Christians, into their house, and they're being destroyed for lack of knowledge. We're not supposed to evidently, as Ezekiel 3 and 33 says, as the watchman seeth the sword coming on the city, we're not supposed to warn the city anymore, evidently. According to this man. it, It was the most asinine email I have ever gotten in my life, considering the source of it. He knows better. He's been on my list long enough. It was. It was I, It was the most asinine email I have ever received in my life. And you know what? Satan is so thrilled with this man that he thinks that there is no, evidently, no merit, To dealing with issues of witchcraft? When the Bible says that the religion, one more religion of the Antichrist is going to be basically witchcraft, where it talks about in Daniel, where it says he will cause craft to prosper in his hand, that word craft means witchcraft. It's called the craft. But evidently it's something we're not supposed to concern ourselves with. And then he went off on this tangent about nakedness. And I don't know if he was implying that I'm running around naked. Listen, I'm fully clothed all the time. To the point, people think that I'm nuts because I don't I don't go around, you know, <laughs> half clothed. So a- anyway, th- this I don't know what tangent um, he was going, what road he was going down. But anyway, um, getting back to this, so evidently witchcraft was pretty important to the Church at Acts, because what. What was one of the things that could have been possibly holding them back? These accursed objects they had in their homes of the curious arts that they brought together, which amounted to $300,000 in today's economy, maybe 400000 now. Many of them also, which used curious arts, brought their books together and burned them before all men. And they counted the price of them and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. What was the result? So, verse 20, So mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. Mightily grew what? The Word of God. And what? Prevailed. Meaning the Word of God got victory in people's lives. Well, you know, why don't we have this happening today? These revivals that say they're revivals aren't even revivals. They're an abomination. It's because we don't have the putting away of the sin like they did back in Acts. We don't have the fear of God that they had back in Acts. Therefore, we really don't have the true power. We have a lot of charismania going on. I read this article the other day. Oh, this guy went in and, and, and all of a sudden he came and he started speaking and gold dust was all over him. And and his and I mean, these people are saying that their feelings are starting to turn to gold and their teeth are starting to turn to gold. And, and I, It's just it's crazy. They got oil, these women coming in, they got oil coming out of them. And It's just like the Catholics. It, it, we're going to be totally merging with the whorish Catholic Church because there's a lot of the same abominations... All these lying signs, and wonders that are going on in the Catholic Church going on in the Charismatic Church. Do you know there's Charismatic Catholics? They've been around for a long time. That's going to be the link, the bridge between the Charismatic Pentecostal Church and the Catholic Church. These churches, that these wicked and adulterous generations that seeketh after a sign, oh, I've got to go see the Marian apparitions. Even though the Gospel she's preaching is contrary to the Gospel in the Bible. Co-redemptrix, you got to go through Mary and Jesus. Oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna walk on my knees all the way to Fatima or whatever. Well, better get yourself some good knee pads then, because you're gonna get all tore up. It's ridiculous, asinine. You're trying, you're, you're trying to earn your way into heaven and prove what a good Catholic or a good charismatic or whatever you're trying to do. I've been there in the charismatic stuff. I know what's going on there. But it's to be seen of men. It's to, try to, it's to try to earn your way into heaven. It's to try to prove to everybody how spiritual you are. It's a joke. And it's an abomination in God's eyes. Because it deviates from the word of God. Something God never called you into. Oh yes, but I had something tell me to do. The, the spirit of God spoke. And it wasn't the spirit of God. If, this, if whatever you're hearing, let me just get this straight too. If whatever you think you're hearing from God contradicts the word of God, then you're not hearing from God. Period. That's how you know it's of God or it's not. Well, I don't care, because what I heard was more real than anything I've ever read in the Bible. Well, then you're right on your way to hell, because you're trusting in your own heart. And he who trusteth in his own heart is a fool. Proverbs twenty-eight twenty-six. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? There is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. That's it. So, you better just kind of make up your mind, you're going to trust the Word of God, or you're going to trust some experience. Because trust me, the religion of the future is existentialism. It's, it's, it's all going to be about experience. Because you know what? The devil will have a whole lot of lying signs and wonders for you to tickle your flesh, to tickle your itching ears, and, and you're going to buy it hook, line, and sinker. I pray to God that doesn't happen. Now let's go ta- now to Ephesians 6. Ephesians 6, verse 10. Now we're going to move into a different phase here. Ephesians 6, verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. That's what we're supposed to be, be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. Verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. What if you don't put on the full armor of God? Well, it implies here that you're probably not going to be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Now, I understand each implement of the armor is an implement and an attribute we should have operating in our life, but I do not think it hurts to actually pray these as well. To remind us and and to show God that we have the spiritual faith to believe that, yes, this full armor of God is being applied to us. Oh, you can't talk about that, that's a little too charismatic. Well, the Bible says to do it. So get over it then. If, if that's a problem, just do it. Verse 12. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Why do, why do we put on the full armor of God? Because it says it right here. Now this is one of the most important verses in all the New Testament. Because it shows us where our battle really is. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. That is where our true battle is. Was that where Jesus' true battle was when he was here? Didn't he contend directly with the devil? Sure did. Even, Even all the other people that opposed him, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and Pilate or whoever, don't you think it was the spirits that were emanating and operating through those individuals that really was really where the battle was? That's where our true battle is. And that's why it's so important to always go back to this verse, particularly in the day and time we're living in. Because it's so easy to get our eyes focused on, oh, the war in the Middle East, oh... How am I going to eat? Oh, where am I going to get water? Oh, is the government going to put me in a concentration camp? Oh, am I going to be forced vaccinated? Okay, all that is the fear of men. Every bit of what I just mentioned is the fear of men. Now, I'm I'm preaching this to myself as much as I am anybody. Because we're still in the flesh. But if you think about it, that's not a... The, The results of all those wicked, evil things I just mentioned are the result of evil spiritual entities... Satan being the chief deity. Sin entered in the, into the world through essentially through Adam and Eve because Satan tempted Eve, tricked her, deceived her. Sin entered the world and now the world's been corrupted through that sin. Satan is referred to as the prince of the power of the air and these are his minions, principalities, powers, rulers of darkness of this world, spiritual wickedness in high places. Now, there's another, I'm going to just go over to this real quick. There's a, uh, I'm going to, my next lesson is going to be on another thing on fallen angels. But, um, another another thing. But, the word principalities in Strong's means archy. It's, it's derived from the word archy. And it's defined as, as a chief in various applications of order, time, place, or rank. It can be described actually as, as possibly an archangel. A fallen archangel. Okay? Because when it says we battle, we're not talking about the good guys. Okay? Now just remember, a third of the angels fell with Satan at that time, but there was still two-thirds of the good guys. So that should be an encouragement. And then the word powers, which is derived from the word exosia, which is defined as mastery, magistrate, superhuman, potentate, delegated influence, authority, or jurisdiction. These, these, these demonic, evil, satanic, fallen angelic entities many times will have, it's, this is organized like an army. Satan has an army and he has his generals, his lieutenants, his colonels, these types of things. Maybe they call them something different, I don't know. But they have jurisdiction over given areas of land and things of this nature. This is why sometimes when you go into a given city, it feels so different than the last city you were just in. I know because when I did that 14-city tour in America, it was crazy because I'd be in one city one night and the people were totally different than they were in another city. And this is really true. A lot of it has to do with this. And then the the word rulers, where it talks about here. Um, And and now this is derived from this word where rulers was derived from in in, um, Ephesians uh, 6, verse 12. That word is derived from the word kosmokatrader which is defined as an attribute of Satan, a worldly ruler. And then the word high, meaning the high places, is defined as above the sky, celestial, heavenly. Okay, so that, just to give you a little more clarification on that. So it says then, if we go to verse 13, Wherefore take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to stand in the day of evil, in the evil day, it, it, it implies there that, that in order for you to stand in the evil day, you're going to have to have the whole armor of God on. It's not, it's not like optional. It's like, going into, it's like going into battle naked. Well, I don't like going into battle. Well, sorry. Put on your chin strap. Put on the full armor of God. And pray God make you a warrior then. The Bible says that he, he likens us to good soldiers. That we're supposed to be good, obedient soldiers to him. Well, I don't like the thought of war. Well, are you even saved? I mean, this is a spiritual battle that you're called to, whether you like it or not as a Christian. You can't just like opt out. Well, I just kind of like want to opt out of this battle and still be saved. Well, you can't have it both ways. I pray God give you a desire to want a battle. Personally, it's something that fires me up. Oh, because you think you're better. No, it's, it's not that. It's just I can't help the way I feel. I want to fight. I want to fight this battle. This is the real battle. No, my little girl just asked me if this means that we should go and basically battle the government and stuff like this. This is a spiritual battle. This is a battle that takes place primarily on your knees. Okay? Okay? Prayer can move mountains. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. If my people, are, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I shall you know, heal their land. And, and see, that's the deal. That's where this battle is really won and lost. It's not so much going out in, and, and physically um, contending with somebody. As it is the spiritual battle that you're in that primarily takes place on your knees. Now, if you have like-minded Christians praying about this, the Bible makes reference to one can put a thousand to flight and two ten thousand to flight. Where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. That's what Jesus Christ said. So this is something that I think that we need to get a, a hold of corporately, but see, it has to be corporately in the right way, and that's what. And again, this is a long study I'm doing today, and I apologize. But I can't really separate this. In fact, this is all I'm going to get done today because we still got a long way to go. Because I wanted to do two, uh, two things, but it's not going to happen. But I really got convicted after going to the seminar this week and speaking. And being there, I really got convicted this is something that I needed to do a dedicated study to. And this is something the Lord showed me a long time ago. And he actually showed me some more things this week about the subject that I'm going to be getting into. That's really neat. Okay, so. Now, and again, I hope ultimately what I'm talking to you about today is an encouragement. Because this is our door of hope we're talking about. Because, see, hope is such a... Huh, how do you have hope with facing all these things that, I, that we've talked about? Martial law, forced vaccinations, plagues, pestilences, all these things. But doesn't the Bible always, doesn't God always, always, always preserve a remnant? What was that? He said, I preserve 5,000 of them that have not bowed the knee to Baal. Doesn't He always, every single time, do that in Scripture? Now that doesn't mean you're going to get out of jail, uh, get out of jail free card pass Maybe. Maybe some of us that are listening to this will have to be martyred. I don't know. But you know something? A lot of those same martyrs that got martyred prayed before they got martyred, prayed that that they wouldn't even feel the pain, that they would actually be able to witness while they were getting brutally tortured or burned at the stake, and they never even felt the pain. Now, is God... Think about this. If you had to be martyred that way, that wouldn't be that bad of a deal. You're basically dying with no pain, and you're witnessing at the same time. You talk about going out in a blaze of glory. Praise the Lord Jesus Christ. What would there be to fear? The only only fear that you're going to really be going through is the pain that you're going to have to endure physically. But God can give you the grace to get through that no matter what. Now I'm talking worst case scenario here. Okay, but hold on. God created the universe. Is he capable of doing something like that? Of course he is. But you have to have the faith to believe that he can do that. Because if you don't have the faith to believe it, it's probably not going to happen. Because without faith, it is impossible to please God. So I'm saying this, I'm trying to say all of this to be an encouragement. So like, let's say you listen to to 50 of my teachings up there, and let's say, you know, wow, wow, you know, come back to this sermon. Come back to this teaching. Because you may have to do this more than Once. Because this is what we have to come back to in the day and time we're going into, and it's not being preached hardly anywhere else. And we've got a long way, we got a lot more to go here. So it says, "Wherefore take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the day of evil." And having done all to stand, this is standing in the day of evil. Verse fourteen: Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth. Are you living and operating and emanating in, in truth? I think a lot of that applies to the Bible that you're reading. If you're reading a perverted Bible, how are you standing in truth? And having on the breastplate of righteousness. Are you living a righteous life? And if these are attributes you're not operating in, pray to God that you do operate in them. So that you can put this piece of armor on legitimately. Verse 15. And your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Personally, I always have Chick Tracks with me. I put them in gas stations. I leave them when I leave tips. If we go to a restaurant or something, I try to put them out. I'm trying to put the gospel out. You never know what God can do with one of those tracks. I personally think Chick Tracks are the best. They're the most expensive, but I believe they're the best. And you can't really put a price on a soul. And their website is like www.chick.com. They've also got a lot of good resources. Verse 16, above all, taking the shield of faith. It says above all. Above all, taking the shield of faith. That's why faith is so important. And if you don't feel as though you have the faith that I'm talking about here, pray that you have faith. Even, Even the Gospels make reference to that. Pray that you have this faith. They even, as the, they, they talk about this. So oh, Lord, strengthen our faith. Strengthen thou my unbelief. Remember where it talks about that in the Gospels? It's not a sin, but it's something you need to go to God for. See, God's the one that has to supply all this. You can't in and of yourself conjure this up or, 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 or work yourself up into some lather where, oh, I got faith now. It doesn't work that way. It's just something that God, the Lord Jesus Christ, has to impart to you. And you just pray for it. If you don't feel like you have any of this stuff, pray for it. Pray for the fear of the Lord. Pray for humility. Oh, I've, I've heard preachers say, oh, don't ever pray for humility. God will put you on your... Maybe that's the exact thing you need to be to be put on your knees to be humble before the Lord. Are you telling me that's a bad thing? Well, my flesh doesn't like it. Who cares about your flesh? Your flesh is supposed to be crucified. For I am crucified with Christ and nevertheless... Yet I live, but not I, but Christ liveth within me. Crucified with Christ. Galatians 2.20. Above all, taking the shield of faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Faith cometh by what? Cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Memorize Scripture. Meditate on Scripture. Have the scriptures playing in your house on a CD player 24-7, somewhere in the house. Even if it's almost at an inaudible level, it's still the Word of God going forth. And the Word of God, the Bible says, My Word shall not return void. That's how you strengthen your faith. Quote Scripture, read Scripture, memorize Scripture, have it plain. I'm telling you that is how you build your faith. And if you've got a perverted Bible plan or you're reading a perverted scripture, you're not going to it's going to affect your faith. It's that simple. I hope it seems that simple to you because it is that simple. Wherewith ye shall be able to to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. How do we quench the fiery darts of the wicked? Through the shield of faith. It says all the fiery darts, not just part. Well, here's another thing. Get this. If your faith is bigger now than it was a year ago, did your shield just grow, maybe? I don't know exactly how all this happens on a spiritual level. But if you're a little baby Christian that's basically totally immature in the Lord, do you think your armor might be different than somebody who is a mature Christian? And somebody who has been um, in the Lord's will and somebody who has the fear of God on their life and is actually operating these attributes? you think your armor might be actually more... Prepared to deal with the battles? Shield of faith. I want as big a shield of faith as I can get. I believe that there is nothing too hard for the Lord Jesus Christ. There is nothing he can't do or that he is not capable of in regard to intervening in a Christian's life, in regard to his protection. He created the universe, he spoke it into existence. Dwell on those big, big, big things like that. That strengthens your faith to me. Verse 17. And then and take the helmet of salvation. Now you've got to be saved for this to work. You can't put the full armor of God on if you're not saved. Thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus Christ, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead. Thou shalt be saved. Romans 10, 9 and 10. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth on Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. John 3.16 I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. John 14.6 Now that's the salvation message, okay? And if you have any... Please, if, if you're wondering how to get saved, email me. I, I, I don't really have time to get into that right this second, but... The helmet of salvation is prerequisite that you're saved. Okay? And then it says, And the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. What if, you, what if you're reading a perverted word? How do you, what's your sword look like? Like a wet noodle? Or does it look like a sword? Is not my word like as a fire, saith the Lord, and like a hammer that breaketh the rock in pieces. I love that verse. I love that verse. Is not my word like as a fire, sayeth the Lord, and like a hammer that breaketh the rock in pieces. You think that fire and that hammer can apply toward these evil entities, these principalities, these powers, these rulers of darkness of this world, against these spiritual wickedness in high places? Do you think it matters what Bible verse you might be quoting back to these devils? You think it might... I mean, I know it matters. The sword of spirit... What's, what what else do we see about this? The sword is the only offensive weapon that I see. Now, granted, you could use a shield, maybe, kind of, but I'm talking about reaching out and touching someone with the sword of the Spirit. Okay? And I don't mean at reaching out and touching someone. I'm talking about the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. You quote that Scripture, and that's why you have to memorize Scripture in order to quote it. You gotta, You can't just... You know, the Bible says the Holy Spirit will cause all these things to be brought into remembrance when the comforter comes. Well the comforter's here. And if the Holy Spirit lives inside you, the comforter's here. And if you're and if you're going in here and you're trying to memorize scripture, he's gonna cause these scriptures to be brought into remembrance. Now there's there's effort required on your part. Okay? But he can do this. I didn't a lot of this stuff that I quote to you I never I don't know, it just comes to me. I can't help it. Praise the Lord. Doesn't mean I think I'm better. But there's just a lot of these things the Holy Spirit will bring into my remembrance as we're doing a sermon that would be appropriate for a given thing that we're looking at. Did you have a question? Okay. So the sword of the Spirit are essentially our only offensive weapon. Now the Bible now Jesus also, said, the Bible also says in the New Testament to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. He also says to put on the mind of Christ. Okay, these are other things that we can actually do. And then verse 18, praying, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. Now the Bible says the Spirit maketh intercession for the saints with groanings which cannot be uttered. Did you know that? It says it cannot be uttered. Because a lot of times people say, well that's tongues. But it says the Spirit maketh intercession for the saints with groanings which cannot be uttered. The Holy Spirit's living inside you, and you're right with God. The Holy Spirit's actually interceding on your behalf. Who else is interceding on our behalf? The Bible says that the Lord Jesus Christ, seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, He sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, is our Heavenly Advocate, who ever maketh intercession for the saints. He's actually interceding on our behalf. Through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, our sin debt is paid and covered... And we can come boldly before the throne of grace to make our supplications known through the Lord Jesus Christ, through His death, burial, and resurrection. This is how we have access and we gain access to the throne. But if you've got all kind of sin in your life, if you're in one of these 501c3 apostate churches, you're reading the wrong Bible, you've got sexual sins going on, or, or, or whatever else, how can you get a hold of God? The Bible says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. We're going to talk about that soon. Because I want to go over every facet of this in one teaching. So praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. Supplications, perseverance. Going to the Lord and and, and in regard to not only ourselves but other saints praying for one another. I mean, God didn't answer Job's prayer about releasing it until he prayed for his friends his so-called friends that were basically judging him. Do you know that? God didn't God didn't answer Job's Job's prayer until he prayed for them. In other words, putting other people ahead of yourself. What does that imply? That implies being a servant to others. You like being a servant to others? Jesus the Bible says Jesus came to be a servant to seek and save that which was lost. Let those that are greatest among you be their servant. He who is last shall be first. These are all things Jesus said. You like being a servant? Well, no. I've got too much pride. Let them serve me. Well, you better pray about that. Personally, I like being a servant. And I'm a doctor. But I like serving and helping other people. I really do. And... The vast majority of what I put out on a weekly basis, I don't get any compensation for this. I don't get any, I mean, I get a little bit of, of, we've had a little bit of donations coming in, in regard to this. But I mean, this costs money. This is a tremendous time burden for me. Not a burden, I shouldn't say that, but it's a tremendous amount of time. And more and more and more, as we're getting up to about $1,200 a week, this is becoming, this could easily be a full-time job for me. And I've told the people on my email list that I will walk away. If the Lord wants me to walk away from my nutritional, from the chiropractic stuff that I'm doing, I'll do it. No problemo. To be quite honest with you, I feel as this is much more important. From But then again, a lot of things I'm doing in the nutritional realm are also important too as far as physically. But I'm still not going to equate that with what like what we're talking about today. So if you don't feel as though you have it in you to be a servant, pray that God puts that in you. Because it is biblical. I mean, Jesus went and he washed the disciples' feet. He humbled himself before the disciples. Here here it is, the creator of the universe washing the the dirty disciples' feet. That we're all going to just basically betray him. Really save John. You know, that must have been hard for him considering he knows the beginning from the end, knowing he was, they were going to... But Jesus was a servant as well. But see, he did that as an example for us. Now, I said all that to say this. Let's go to Psalm 64. Now we're going to talk about imprecatory prayers. Now, I'll give you my, a little testimony here about, I don't know how many years ago it was, three plus years ago, when I first got called to do some public speaking, I spoke up at, at Indianapolis at a uh, church conference up there, and I felt as though when that church conference, when I spoke up there, I had something change in my life, and I was I was seeing a woman at the time that I was under the impression was a godly woman, and it turned out she wasn't. And, when I got on the other side of that, and when the Lord started opening my eyes to that, I went through the darkest time I'd ever known in my life. I mean, it was a spiritual thing, is all I can say. Because the amount of agony that I went through was unlike anything I've ever been through in my life. Because, see, sin has a price. Even if you repent of that sin, if you've planted seeds, there's still a price. And to whom the Lord... To whom is given, much much is required. And you reap what you sow. And the higher you are, as far as a Christian, in your walk with the Lord, if you sin, the price is greater than if you're just a little baby Christian that doesn't maybe know better about a certain thing. So the price I had to pay from an agony spiritual standpoint, was unlike anything I have ever known. I went from a body weight of about 215 to about 180. In about a two and a half, three month period. I lost about 35 pounds. Um, I couldn't eat. Couldn't sleep. Was in a job at a group practice that I was practicing in Chiropractic trying to be Mr. Doctor during the day, and between patients was going in between patients and bawling my eyes out. I I would be crying four, five, six, seven times a day. And I didn't even understand what I was really going through. And again, it was more of a spiritual thing. And I had never known anything. I would cry so hard at night that I would start vomiting. And I would vomit and get the dry heaves. And I mean, it was to the point where I would start choking and vomit. I mean, it was unbelievable. I cannot tell you, I have never been through anything like this in my life. It was unbelievable. It was the darkest valley I had ever known. And I deserved it. I deserved it. Now granted, I was deceived, true. But I deserved it. I realized that this was this was, you know, hey... I was um I was being taken to the woodshed by God whom the Lord loveth He also chasteneth It was my time to pay the bill and uh, I went through this time and um, you know I couldn't eat i I just looked terrible and and I got on the other side of this and it took months months and months and months got on the other side of this. essentially, I had spent the whole time in the book of Psalms. I had to have the comfort of the Lord during this time. And I would highly encourage anyone that's going through a time like that, get into the book of Psalms and just stay there. I mean, if the Lord's leading you someplace else, I mean, obviously, but... So I was in the book of Psalms, and you know where God seemed to obviously bring me after I'd been in there for months and months and months and months? He brought me to one spot, really two. Psalm 91, but particularly Psalm 64. Psalm 64 was where I believe the Holy Spirit supernaturally brought me. Psalm 64. And that's why we're going to go into this now. Now, after I'd been in Psalm 64, I went to a, a, a uh, seminar, um, Fundamental Baptist Seminar, where I actually heard Pastor John Weaver preach this sermon on the Door of Hope which is what we talked about earlier, the Valley of Acre for Door of Hope. And he actually has a sermon, and I highly recommend you listen to it. And in that sermon, he got and he dealt with not only Hosea 2, where it talks about the Valley of Acre for Door of Hope, but he talked about what would bring about God's judgment on the wicked. Is there a way that we could pray that God would bring judgment on the wicked? And we're going to talk about this. And that was where I got to Psalm 64. Because this is what Psalm 64 is. Okay, let's just read this real quick. Hear my voice, O God, my prayer. Preserve my life from the fear of the enemy. Hide me from the secret counsel of the wicked, from the insurrection of the workers of iniquity. Now, is this something that you would like as a Christian? Going into the times that we're going into, would you like to be hid from the secret counsel of the wicked? from the insurrection of the workers of iniquity? Would you like God to preserve your life from the fear of the enemy? See, you're not supposed to have really the fear of the enemy. We need fear of God. Verse 3, Who wet their tongue like a sword, and bend their bows to shoot their arrows, even bitter words. Now, before we go any further, where where you might be thinking, Oh, I'm just going to pray this against all the wicked people so they'll leave me alone and I'll live a life of ease. This isn't what this is about. Understand one thing. We just read Ephesians 6, where it said we battle not against flesh and blood, but princes, principalities, rulers, of wickedness in high places, these things. So that's our true battle. So, when you pray this prayer, how should it really be directed? Should it be directed toward people that are making you mad? Or should it possibly be directed toward the evil entities, the fallen angels, the demons, the devils, that are emanating and operating not only in people in high government, not only in people maybe around you, not only in high places, this is how this prayer should be directed. If we battle not against flesh and blood, then this is how we need to direct this prayer toward the evil entities that we're dealing with on a daily basis. Now, if you think about it that way, it totally changes everything. Because it's not so much you're praying, oh, I I pray you, you kill Johnny because he's giving me a hard time. It's not about that. It's about God dealing with the evil entities, these princes, these powers, these rulers of wickedness. Which is where our true battle really is. That's what the imprecatory prayers, I think, have their most power. In dealing with our true battle. Who wet their tongue like a sword and bend their bows to shoot their arrows. Even bitter words. That's verse 3. That they may shoot in secret at the perfect. Suddenly do they shoot at him and fear not. They encourage themselves in an evil matter. They commune of laying of snares privily. They say, who shall see them? They search out iniquities. They accomplish a diligent search. Both the inward thought of every one of them and the heart is deep. So this is up to verse 6. It's all basically... A Christian stating, here is the battle I'm in, God. Here's what they're trying to do to me. Here's what's in their hearts. But verse 7 says, but God shall shoot at them with an arrow. (laughs) Suddenly shall they be wounded. You think God can do this to spiritual entities as well as humans? Yes, He can. He sure can. We don't know what actually takes place on a spiritual plane in regard to these devils and demons and fallen angels. We don't really know. So they shall make their own tongues their own tongue to fall upon themselves. In other words, all the stuff that they had said, they wet their tongue like a sword and they bend their bows to shoot their arrows. Even bitter words. But see now, so their so they shall make their own tongue to fall upon themselves. The very thing they wanted and wished and tried to impose on other people now is falling on themselves. All that see them shall flee away. Now hold on here. This is starting to sound a little bit familiar like all those verses in Acts we just talked about. Where great fear fell on the camp. All that see them shall flee away. And all men shall fear. Oh my! Fear God? Sure. All men shall fear and shall declare the work of God. Well, sounds to me like God's name is getting glorified. And great fear is falling on the camp. Sounds like a really good thing to me. Sounds like if more of this was going on, God's name would be getting glorified. More fear would fall upon people. All men would see and fear and declare the work of God that they would wisely consider His doing. Which is how that verse ends. And then verse 10, The righteous shall be glad in the Lord. This is an encouragement to the righteous when God's judgment happens. The righteous shall be glad in the Lord and shall trust in Him. And all the upright in heart shall glory. This sounds like a really win-win thing for a Christian to me. Not only are our enemies being dealt with, but they're being dealt with in such a way that they're being removed that their own tongue is falling upon themselves that all that are seeing this, both saved and unsaved, particularly here, unsaved, will flee away. In other words, they're going to think twice about being a devil. Maybe they'll get saved. And then all men shall fear. And they're not going to fear the devil, they're going to fear God. And that's what we need. How do you get saved coming to God pridefully? Yeah, I'll come to you, God. I'll get saved on my terms. doesn't happen that way. You know the best way to get somebody saved is if they have a nice healthy dose of fear of God in them? That they realize their status before the Lord? And they come before Him humbly? Because fear of God humbles you. And when you get humbled, you're in the most likely mindset to get saved. How do you get saved being proud? How, how, How does that happen? I don't know how it happens, but I know humility is a prerequisite for salvation. You have to come before the Lord humbly. The Bible, Jesus said, "Unless you humble yourself and come before before me as a little child, you'll not see God. You, you're not going to see the kingdom of heaven. The the ones that are greatest in the kingdom of heaven are those that will humble themselves before as a little child. So that also has to do with your rank and your status in heaven. If you uh, are you willing to humble yourself as a little child, are you willing to get on your knees every day and humble yourself as a little child before God and go to prayer to Him in that way?" I consider it an honor. Hum, I humble I mean, if whatever it takes, we should be humbling ourselves before the Lord. That pleases God. It's so one of the only things we can really do to please God, is to come before Him as a little child, because all of our own righteousness are as filthy rags. If we are trying, but when you humble yourself, I believe God honors that, because that's one of the only things we can do. I mean, I understand you can go out and do this and that, and, and but I'm talking about. Something that I think God would look down on and would please God. And I'm going to prove that in a second. Biblically. So, here's all the fruit. I was like, now we're looking at a lot of fruit here, okay? So, God's dealt with the wicked. He's basically shot them with an arrow. They're wounded. Their their own tongues fall upon themselves. All the wicked have saw this and fleeed away. All men shall fear. Fear God. And then they will do what? They shall declare the work of God. That implies saved and unsaved, declaring the work of God. When you declare the work of God, there's a high likelihood people are going to get saved. God's name is going to be glorified. For they shall wisely consider of His doing. Who's doing? God's doing. They're going to start to think that there's a price and a penalty to this sin. And maybe you know something? Maybe there is a price. And may- maybe I do need to think about where I'm going to spend eternity. Is anything that we're mentioning here bad? Oh, yes, but they'll go back to the verse, Oh, well, Jesus has blessed them that curse you and curse... Okay, I understand that. Jesus said that. But let me ask you a question. Did Jesus say that we should pray for the wicked, that they prosper in their wickedness? Bless them, God, in their wickedness. Just bless them. I don't care how you bless them, God. Just bless them. Bless them in their wickedness. Why? Would Jesus Christ want a wicked person to continue in wickedness? And hopefully, hopefully he'll take a whole bunch of people to hell with him? The Bible says it's His will that not one would perish, but that all would come to repentance. That's contrary to the Word of God. So please, let's have some balance here. What's the ultimate blessing you could pray for somebody? Bless them that curse you and, you know, them that despitefully use you? Okay. Jesus said that. I give you that. What's the best thing you could pray for them? That they get saved. How are most people going to get saved, especially in this day and age, where pride abounds, if God humbles them? if they get a healthy dose of fear of God, and understand they're lost in their sinful state. That's the only way they're going to get saved, is if God judges them in this lifetime. Isn't Wasn't that the fruit all in Acts that we just talked about? When great fear fell on the camp, when God destroyed Ananias and Sapphira? Many got saved, many got converted, there were many miracles, all were within one accord. They got rid of their curious arts. All these good things happened as a result of God's judgment. Psalm 64 is asking for God to judge and overthrow the wicked. And how I pray this, the mindset I pray this is, Lord, if it be possible, I pray their souls be saved, the wicked. But again, this prayer, I believe, is more primarily directed toward the evil, wicked, spiritual entities that are where our battle really exists. Now, could you imagine if we as a church got a hold of this concept and started praying something like Psalm 64 in a corporate manner? Who knows what could happen on a spiritual level? An unseen level. And soon, that unseen level would transmit into a level that can be seen. Because it would start to manifest in this existence as well. Verse 10. The righteous shall be glad in the Lord, and shall trust in Him. What does that imply? That implies when the righteous see God sees God judging... and judgment falls on the wicked... what is that to a righteous person? That's an encouragement to Him. And what does it also do? It causes them to trust in Him even more. Because they see God judging sin... and iniquity. It says it right here... and shall trust in Him. Who? Who's Him? God. And all the upright hearts shall glory. So God gets glory. People ultimately get converted... saved... God gets glory... the wicked are put away... What's the problem here? I mean, is, I don't see any downside to this. I really don't. Well, I heard, I heard Pastor Weaver preach this. This is about three months after. I j- just started into this real dark time. And I had never heard anybody preach on imprecatory prayers, ever. And that was a total confirmation to me. And then there was one other thing that happened that was really, really heavy duty. There was another preacher... That had come back into town. I was invited to go over to this house for this little church meeting. And this preacher, at one time, his name was Pastor Letiri. He had his own church out on this little island uh, community where near where I live, and he had a small little independent Fundamental King James Only Baptist church. He was actually a patient of mine, um, but I never, you know, it was just one of those things. I, I never really talked to him about the Lord. I guess when he was my patient, we did a little bit. I was he was coming to me primarily for uh, health issues. And um, I ended up um, going over to this house, and he had lost his church. I mean, he lost it in the most horrific way you can imagine. His whole congregation had turned against him. He basically lost his church, the, the, his congregation had turned against him, and he even got the government involved. They got in his wife's head, and he lost his wife, his four or five kids, his church, everything. He lost everything. And, and I mean, this, this, was, this man was broken... But at the same time, he had never given up on God. Still total soul winner. The guy, the guy was aw- and I really felt, <clears throat> being around this man, that he was a man of God. I just wanted to be around this guy. I mean, it's one of those guys that, that I felt he was so close to God. I just wanted to be around him. I didn't really care, just as long as I could be around him. You know? And um, I just immediately had a, it was like a kindred spirit. You know, or, or, or that type of feeling that you have. For, a, for like a Christian brother or, or sister, and I remember him, and I only saw him two times, and 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 I he must have lost my number or something. I I don't know exactly what happened, and maybe it was just God had him in my life real briefly. I hope I see him again someday in this life. But he was sitting there preaching. He gave this big testimony about how he had all these horrific things happen to him, and this were these were verifiably true. I found out. I mean, they were they really did happen to him. He wasn't making this stuff up. He was basically living out of a van at this point. And I felt so sorry for him. But this was after I was in this incredibly dark time. I was still in it. And God had already shown me about Psalm 64. He already showed me this clearly. And I remember he gets to the end of his testimony. And he says, But you know something? After I went through all this stuff, And he starts, he opens his Bible and he starts flipping. He says, God brought me to one part in the Bible that I've always hung on to and always dwelt in. And and this is where God planted me. And he turns and I see he's turning to Psalms. And I'm thinking, nah, he's not going to turn to Psalm 64. He turns to Psalm 64 and he starts reading it. I could not believe it. I have never, I don't know if I've ever been so moved in my life. Because I was in the darkest time I had ever known, he had just come through this, and he's telling me that God brought him to the exact same spot in the Bible that God clearly brought me. Now, does that mean I think I'm better? No, I'm just telling you this is a true story. And he started reading that, and I—I I, I mean, I remember I saw him sixty-four a long time ago, and I was reading it with him. But I'll tell you what—that was another gigantic confirmation to me. You know, here we have Pastor Weaver. We've got this Pastor Letiri, We've got, we've got. I know God showed this to me, and these other two men are, are men of God. And God, you know, I just think this is something that's missing in the modern day church: these imprecatory prayers and these types of things. So I'm going to move forward now, and I'm going to. We're going to go over a little bit of things as far as okay, it's all well and good to pray or imprecatory prayer. What are the things that are you're going to do to hinder these things? What, what, if, what if you've got all kind of stuff in your life where God can't hear you? Psalm 19, verse 12 through 14 says, Who can understand his errors? Cleanse thou me from secret faults. Keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me, then shall I be upright, and I shall be innocent from the great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. This is something that we should incorporate into our prayer life. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing or acceptable in thy sight. Cleanse me of secret faults. These are faults we don't even know about. Search my heart, O Lord, because we may be doing things that may be sin and we don't even know them to be sin. Keep back thy servant of presumptuous sins. Presumptuous sins are sins that you don't see as a sin because you're presuming they're not a sin. That's why they're called presumptuous. You're presuming they're not even sin. But they are. Remember, God's ways are not our ways. He's perfectly holy. And and we might think something's no big deal, especially if we're going to some lukewarm church where they're not even preaching on sin. We don't even know what sin is. We're reading the wrong Bible. How do you even have a chance to even find out what it is? Now the word presumptuous from the 1828 Webster's, which is what I go back to to define the words of the King James Bible as they were written. Because essentially if you have a King James Bible, you have a 1769 King James Bible. The 1611 was the, was the original original translation that came out. But there were some revisions that took place after that more in grammar and spelling and things of this nature. And the last revision was 1769. So if you hold a King James Bible in your hand, it's actually a 1769 King James Bible. The Webster's 1828 Dictionary defines those words as when they were written. More accurately than a dictionary of today's vernacular does, which has kind of been polluted and corrupted. The word presumptuous is founded on the word presumption. This is from the Webster's 1828. It means proceeding from excess of confidence applied to things as a presumptuous hope, arrogant, insolent, unduly confident, irreverent with respect to sacred things. Now, the word humble, what does it mean? Now, let's let's read Isaiah 57.15. Isaiah 57.15 says, For thus saith the High and Lofty One that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is Holy, I dwell in the High and Holy Place. With him also that is of a contrite and a humble spirit. Who does he dwell with? Remember what I said earlier? One of the only things we can really give God is our humility. Once you've been saved. I mean, think about it. What our righteousness are is filthy rags. Now, I understand you can do something through the power of the Holy Spirit, and that is not a filthy rag in God's sight. But who does God say he dwells with? With him that is also of a contrite and a humble spirit. When I, you know, when I was going through that really dark time, the only way I could get to sleep was that I would picture myself on the side, not even in the front of the throne of the Lord Jesus Christ. I pictured Him on His throne, and I would, and I would just be there in like a fetal position on the side of the throne, just just wanting to be near Him. And I would, and I would picture me wrapping my arm around His around His ankle. It was the only way I could go to sleep. I was that broken, where that was the only thing that that I could drive comfort in. Now, that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. But literally, that's how I got to sleep every night. Jesus Christ says, who does he dwell with? Those that are of a contrite and humble spirit. Moses was the meekest man on earth, it says. He also had a bad temper. So you can actually have... Still bad attributes, you can have a bad temper, I'm not encouraging it, but I'm saying you could still be meek and humble, and still have other things that you're dealing with. It's kind of like a separate issue here. And if you don't feel as though you are meek and humble before the Lord are contrite, pray for it. With whom, and also, you know what this also implies? Psalm, Isaiah 57 verse 15. For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity. This is like, this about makes me start crying, just the first line whose name is Holy. I dwell in the high and holy place. With him also that is of a contrite and a humble spirit. Does that imply that that is one of the ways we access the throne of God? Humbly, of a contrite spirit? To revive the spirit of the humble. And to revive the heart of the contrite ones. There's no pride in God's presence. There's no... There's no pride in His presence. You won't, walk, won't, that, that doesn't work. He created the universe. You need to understand your position in regard to Him. To me, I take comfort in that. I am nothing in comparison to the Lord Jesus Christ. There's nothing good within me other than the Holy Spirit that lives within me, other than the blood of Jesus Christ that's been applied to my life. All my righteousness are as filthy rags. For we do all together as fade as doth a leaf does, the Bible says. Apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, we're nothing. Period. But see, people can't accept that. They want to get to heaven their way. They want their Burger King religion. They want it now, and they want it their way. I'm going to get to heaven because I'm a good person, or I'm a good Buddhist, or I'm a good Catholic, or I'm a good this or that. Why don't you put all that away? It's a free gift. You either freely receive or you freely reject, according to Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Why do you want it the hard way? And then to burn in hell for eternity. Why do you want it that way? To me, this is much more comforting. This is is the way. Granted, it's the narrow way. And few there be that find it. But it's the better way. Just humble yourself. Pray for it. What does the word humble mean? According to the Webster's 1828, it means lowly. It means modest, it means meek, submissive, opposed to being proud or haughty, arrogant or assuming, in an evangelical sense having a low opinion of oneself and a deep sense of unworthiness in the sight of God. That's what the Webster's 1828 says. I guarantee you, your your dictionary at home doesn't say that, probably. Because the nice thing about this Webster's 1828 is they make all these biblical references. A deep sense of unworthiness in the sight of God. Who am I, God? that thou would considerest me. Who am I? You think start thinking about the universe and all that he did for you and, and how all the planets are arranged and, 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 and the opportunities he's given you and the very fact that, that if you're listening to this message or if you're saved, that great, incredible honor, I mean, that should humble you. I know it's easy to get your eyes off it, but that's what humble means. And meekness does not mean weakness. Because I'm telling you right now, was Moses weak? No. He had a backbone like a redwood. You're humble and you're meek before the Lord. And yes, you esteem others higher than yourself. And yes, you are a servant to others. And if you don't feel you want to be that way, pray God makes you that way. Because he's the only one that can do it. He's the only one that can do it. You can't can't muster this up. Pray Pray God gives you it. What does contrite mean? Contrite. Literally, worn or bruised. Hence, broken hearted for sin. Deeply affected with grief and sorrow for having offended God. <laughs> is that how you feel when you sin? I mean, is it? I'm not saying I'm perfect. But when you sin, do you feel as though you've offended God? God. Do you feel that way? It also means humble, penitent, and contrite. These are things that if you don't feel these ways, then pray for it. Because we should have conviction for our sin. There should be chastisement on our life when we sin. It's just the way it should be. It's evidence of salvation. And yes, there's the fruit of the Spirit and there's a lot of other things that you can look for. Isaiah 66, verse 2. Sorry, um, I get really emotional about this particular subject because it's very near and dear to me. Isaiah 66, verse 2. For all those things hath mine hand made. And all those things have been, saith the Lord. Ah, oh, thank you. But to this man will I look even to him that is of a poor and of a contrite spirit, and trembleth at my word. This is the man that God says he's going to look to. Poor and a contrite spirit? When you see that word poor, it doesn't mean that you're poor in money. In the King James Bible, if you want to know what a word means, many times there's another word in close proximity to that word that means the same thing. And when you see the words humble and contrite together, they're both, both very similar in their meanings. This is the man to whom God will look. Poor and contrite, basically we're talking about the same thing here. And trembleth at my word. What does that imply? Fear of God. Because see, fear of God will bring the humility and the contriteness. That's, wh- that's why fear of God is so important. <clears throat> what does poor mean? According to the Webster's 1828, in, in the biblical reference, it means poor in spirit, in a scriptural sense, humble, contrite, abased in one's own sight by a sense of guilt. See, when we start comparing ourselves to a holy God in heaven, we start seeing how falling, how short we've fallen. We're falling from His mark. Sin is essentially missing the mark. Psalm 22 verse 25 says, My praise shall be of thee in the great congregation. I will pay my vows before them that fear him. That's the kind of congregation you want to be in. You want to be in a congregation, you want to pay your vows before them that fear him. That's why we're not supposed to be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. So it's ideal that not only yourself but the people of your congregation fear the Lord. Because if you're in a church and you're the only one that fears God, that's going to hinder you. Unfortunately, this dynamic is almost non-existent in America. Psalm 25 verse 14, "The secret of the Lord is with them that fear him." Wow, that sounds pretty good. The secret of the Lord, this is the secret. You know how they have the secret out now? Oh, secret, name it and claim it. You know, it's like New Age, name it and claim it. Oprah's promoting it, it's all the rage. I got a whole sermon we did on it earlier. You can listen to that. But see, the secret of the Lord is with them that fear Him. And He will show them His covenant. I want to know the Lord's secret. Psalm 33, verse 18. Behold, the eye of the Lord is upon them that fear Him. Who does, this, who does God look to? Them that fear Him. Them that are of a humble and a contrite spirit. Who does He choose to dwell with? The, the high and lofty one of heaven. They that be of a humble spirit and a contrite heart. That's who, he, that's who God wants to basically, you know, dwell with. Psalm 34 verse 7. The angel of the Lord encampeth around about them that fear Him and delivereth them. So here, the angel of the Lord, this implies protection from the Lord, and it also implies deliverance from... Would you like to be delivered in the coming plagues that are coming? Why do you think Jesus says, pray that you be accounted worthy to escape all the things coming upon this world? Do you think part of that worthiness might be a humble and a contrite spirit, or somebody that fears the Lord? Who would God choose to call worthy? I would imagine it would be somebody that was humble and contrite and feared Him. Psalm 34, verse 9. O fear the Lord, ye his saints, for there is no want to them that fear him. That implies provision. Psalm 85, verse 9. Surely his salvation is nigh unto them that fear him. Now here's another thing. Remember what I said earlier? How do you get saved being proud? But it says, Surely his salvation is nigh unto them that fear him. Nigh means near. This implies that when you get saved, one of the prerequisites for truly getting saved is fear of God. Oh, I just think of him as the great guy in the sky, and that's all I ever think of him. I don't fear him a bit. That, you know, <laughs> that's not biblical. I'm sorry. If you have a dad, and he's a disciplinarian in a biblical way growing up, do you fear him? you fear what his wrath might be? Is that evil that you fear him? No. He's being biblical. If he's disciplining you biblically, you should have a fear of him. How much more so God? Who has the power to cast not only who has the power to cast both body and soul into hell? That's why Jesus said, Fear not man that can just kill the body. Fear him that can cast body and soul into hell. So we go further. So we have the salvation now. Salvation is nine of them that fear him. That glory may dwell in our land. Well, that implies that if people are getting saved and we fear God, that glory will start to dwell in the land. That God's name be glorified. This sounds like good stuff to me. These sound like the best blessings you could possibly ever get. Why aren't the prosperity preachers preaching on this? These are the best blessings you could get in the Bible. But they're, they're ignored. Aren't spiritual blessings better than, than carnal? Which, will, which are going to fade? Moth and canker eateth away. The Bible says for the world waxeth old as doth a garment. Psalm 103 verse 11 For as the heavens for as the heaven is high above the earth so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. Psalm 103 verse 13 Like as a father pitieth his children so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. That is awesome. Don't you want, I want God to pity me. I really do. As sorry as I am, I want God to pity me. I do. I want I want his pity. I admit it. Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them, who, that fear him. That's the only, but that's the only person that the Lord says he's going to pity. And humility and contriteness are always associated with fear of God, if you notice here. Because fear of God breeds humility and contriteness. So we've got God's mercy that fear Him. We've got the Lord pities them. We've got provision. We've got the angel of the Lord encamping around about them. We've got the secret of the Lord being known to them that fear Him. We know that the eye of the Lord is upon them that fear Him. We know that that's who God wants to dwell with. We know that understanding, the beginning of wisdom, understanding, and knowledge is to them that fear God. This is like the most awesome thing I have ever... Isn't this like the best? I don't know of any other thing in the Bible where there's more blessings connected with other than the fear of the Lord. And fear of the Lord breeds humility and contriteness. Typically. Psalm 103, verse 17. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. Upon who? Upon them that fear Him. Mercy. You want God's mercy? You want God's mercy in the times that we're going into? Pray for the fear of the Lord on your life. And his righteousness unto his children's children. What what does that imply? That implies he's going to take care of your family too. This all sounds real good to me. I don't know about you, but this sounds real good to me. (laughs) I mean, these are so many of the things we're concerned about, isn't it? We want to get our eyes on all these things that I mentioned earlier. All these things that are coming down the road, but hold on, this takes care of all that. I think this is something we want to get a hold of now prior to it getting really bad. Now if you're listening to this in China and I know I've got a lot of people downloading from China it's already gotten bad for you. And I praise God for you listening to this. But it's already gotten bad for you. And I'm sure you've went through things that I've never even went through. And I pray God bless you and I pray to God he take care of you. And I pray to God that if you haven't got a hold of this teaching, you get a hold of it tonight. Because I think the Lord can deliver you out of that situation that you're in. And I'm not saying that's going to happen, because it might not even happen for me. We might have to go through the most whatever, but it's, his grace is still sufficient. No matter what, no matter what happens. The Lord Jesus Christ's grace is still sufficient no matter what happens to any of us. We've all got a different path that we're appointed to go down. God knows the beginning from the end. And He knows how to do to help us along the way. Psalm 115, verse, no, Psalm 111, verse 5 says, He hath given meat unto them that fear Him. What does that provide? Food. He hath given meat unto who? Unto him that fear Him. Do you ever know about all these verses? He will be ever mindful of His covenant. With who? Them that fear Him. You want God to remember you in the in the coming times? There's some there's some prerequisites, I believe, for this. Now, one of the things that we can also do is just I mean, just looking at the Ten Commandments, a good template for sin. Okay? Now, I know that we're not under the law, but is there anything, you know, does that mean we, we should sin that grace may abound? No, the Bible says God forbid. So I'm just going to go over the Ten Commandments real quick. Because these are things that would also hinder our prayers. Because the Bible says if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. So if we got all kind of sin in our life, how is God going to hear us? The first commandment. I am the Lord, the God, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. First commandment. Thou shalt not make of make unto thee any graven image. Well, there's the, the Catholics are really off base on this. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Okay? Remember the Sabbath day, to keep it holy. Okay, now again, I don't think we're under the Levitical sabbatical law in that regard, because Jesus said, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. Okay? I do think it is scriptural to appoint a day, and have it as a day of rest, a day that you... Fully dedicate toward the Lord, which is basically what we've designated Sunday here. Okay? But I don't think if you go out and pick up a stick on the Sabbath, you're going to be struck down either. Okay? So let's have some balance here with that, too. And I have a whole study we've done on that, but I haven't just put it online yet. All right, I really need to do it in an audio version. And then honor the fa- thy father and thy mother. I mean, this is one of the things that happens a lot now. You, you, you have these kids cursing mother and father. And they have all these horrific things that befall them. The Bible says if you curse mother and father, your days are going to be shortened. Then it says, thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, nor his wife, nor anything that belongs to him. That's the commandment that the Catholics split up. And they take out the second commandment, where it says... Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. That way they can have all their statues of Mary, and on Peter, Paul, and Mary, and whatever else. But thou shalt not cover thy neighbor's house, nor his wife, nor anything that belongs to him. If you have problems with any of these areas, pray God help you with it. I'm not here to condemn you. Psalm 145 verse 19 says, He will fulfill the desire of them that fear him. That's also another neat thing. He will also hear their cry. And will save them. Wow, what if you don't fear God? Well, let's reverse it. He will not fulfill the desire of them that don't fear Him. He will he will also not hear their cry, and He will not save them. Now, I know I kind of flip things around, but can we assume the opposite? If God says it one way, can we assume the opposite? I think it's pretty safe. So here's another tremendous blessing connected with the fear of the Lord. Fulfilling your desires. I mean, if your desires are not to consume it of your own lust, not those type of desires. But if it lines up with the Word of God, if it be His will, yes. He's going to hear their cry. He's going to save them. Psalm 147, verse 11. The Lord taketh pleasure in them that fear Him. and And those that hope in His mercy. You hope in God's mercy? He takes pleasure in those that fear Him. Luke 1, 1.50 And His mercy is upon... Now this is the New Testament. Luke one fifty, And His mercy is on them that fear Him from generation to generation. This implies that God's mercy is on those that fear Him. Ecclesiastes 8.12 Surely I know that it shall be well with them that fear God, which fear before Him. Psalm 2.11 Serve the Lord with fear. And rejoice with trembling. This is why it tells us to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Doesn't it say that? Work out our own salvation with fear and trembling? Philemon 2.12. New Testament. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Second Chronicles 7.14 If my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray humble, pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways this involves repentance then, it's conditional then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. What if you don't humble yourselves, pray and turn from your wicked ways? Well how it doesn't sound like God will then forgive your sin. Well I'm saved, he forgives it no matter what. Oh, if you don't repent of it, He doesn't forgive it? And if the Holy Spirit lives inside you, why aren't you getting conviction to repent? You should be. He lives inside you. Then will I hear from heaven, and I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. It's conditional. It's conditional. 2 Chronicles 34, verse 27. Because thine heart was tender and thou didst humble thyself before God, when thou heardest his words against this place, and against the inhabitants thereof, and humblest thyself before me, and didst rend thy clothes, and weep before me, I have even heard thee also, saith the Lord. That was conditional for God hearing. I believe that was a king's prayer. Second Chronicles 34, verse 27, Because his heart was tender. Because he humbled himself before God. And humbled himself before God. And this person ran his, he tore his clothes and he wept before me. And a lot of times you'll see them them weeping in sackcloth and ashes. I actually did that. During that dark time, I actually went and got a whole bunch of ashes. And basically put myself in like, uh, was that, I think I was in like a I think I got some burlap or something. I, I mean, I wanted, to get, I wanted to get as biblical as I could possibly get. I put myself in my bathtub and threw ashes all over myself. I was trying to humble myself before God the most strongest way. And you oh, now this, he's really went off the deep end now. Well, you know what? It's biblical. I mean, if you really want to get a hold of God and you go through the kind of agony that I went through, that agony will get your attention. It will really, really get your attention. And you'll start seeking out things to please God that you never thought you'd ever do. Because your main priority becomes, what do I have to do to get a hold of God? What do I have to do to have the Lord move on my behalf? Because, trust me, pain and agony are a tremendous motivator. That's why God sends judgment into our lives, so we will get right. It's not because he's just up there laughing at us, thinking, ha oh, ha well, I'm, I'm having fun torturing him. There's a purpose in it. There's always a purpose. And if we go further, where was we at here? And so, he, so this man rent his clothes, he wept before God, and he did all these things, and it pleased God. Psalm 9, verse 12, He forgetteth not the cry of the humble. Have you ever cried to the Lord in prayer? Balled your eyes out? It says He forgetteth not the cry of the humble. <clears throat> Psalm 10, verse 17, Thou, Lord, thou hast heard the desire of the humble. Thou will prepare their heart. Thou will cause thine ear to hear. Man, all this is blessings. Every bit of it. Every bit of it is stuff that people want. But they just don't want to go about it the right way to get it most of the time. Christians, they want to do it their own way. Proverbs 29, verse 23. A man's pride shall bring him where? Shall bring him low. But honor shall uphold the humble in spirit. Proverbs 15, verse 33. The fear of the Lord is the instruction of wisdom. How are you going to get wise unless you fear God? And honor is before humility. Honor is before humility. Or, or No, before honor is humility. I'm sorry. Before honor is humility. So don't be surprised if you have to go through the darkest time of your life where you're humbled to a point where you've never been humbled before. And then you're honored. You don't see it very often anymore. In, in today's day and age, with the Christians being what they are, because they're not taught this. Proverbs 18, verse 12. And I think about these pastors that say, oh, don't no, ever pray for humility. Who's, who's putting that in their mouths? Who's putting that in their... God? You think God... It's so asinine. Because you see all the blessings connected with humility. But oh no, we don't want to suffer in the flesh. Lord knows that pastor doesn't want to suffer in the flesh. And Lord knows he's never prayed it. Or if he did, he, 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 he repented of that thing. <laughs> you know... And I mean that tongue-in-cheek. You want to say something? Okay, so before honor is humility. Proverbs 18.12, Before destruction, the heart of a man is haughty. And before honor is humility. There it says it again. So before destruction, the man, the heart of a man is haughty, or prideful. See, what is the opposite of, of humility and contriteness? Pride, what was essentially the first sin of the Bible? Well, when Lucifer let pride well up in him, and his because of his beauty he was lifted up, this is one of the essentially the main sins of the whole Bible. And then he said, I will ascend unto the sides of the north. I will be like the Most High. See, pride blinds you to things. Because when you're proud, you don't see it as being wrong. You see yourself as well, there's nothing wrong with me. I'm basically a good Christian. I'm this or that. And that's the opposite of humility. And what it does is the reason that it's so dangerous is because pride, which is the opposite of what we're talking about here, blinds you. Whereas if you're a mass murderer or you're a thief, you know you're a mass murderer thief. You see yourself for what you are typically. But if you're proud, you don't see it as being wrong. That's why it's so dangerous because it'll take you to hell. It's probably going to take more people to hell than any other sin That's ever been. What is the exact polar opposite of pride? Humility, contriteness, and fear of the Lord. It's another point there to think about. Listen to this. Why isn't Benny Hinn preaching on this? Proverbs 22, verse 4. By humility and fear of the Lord are riches and honor and life. Now, I'm not getting into the name and claim it stuff here. But it does say this. How many people are rich, but they're rich because, essentially, they're serving the devil? But it says, by humility and fear of the Lord are riches and honor and life. See, somebody who's truly humble, and somebody who's truly meek, and somebody who truly fears God, God can actually give them riches. Job was was meek and humble, and God gave, he was like, what, the richest man in the world, I think, at the time? You know, at one time, Solomon was too. We're going to talk about that in a second. In fact, we're going to talk about that now. How, so how did, how did Solomon get his prayers answered? Let's read it. 1 Kings 3, 5-12 through 12. And in Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. And God said, Ask what, what shall I give thee? So God gives him basically like a blank check. Ask what I shall give thee. And Solomon said, Thou hast showed unto thy servant David my father, great mercy. According as he has walked before thee in truth and in righteousness and in uprightness of heart with thee. And thou hast kept for him this great kindness, that thou hast given him a son to sit on the throne as of this day. This is pretty pretty humble and grateful here so far. And now, O Lord my God, thou hast made thy servant king instead of, instead of David my father, but I am but a little child. The richest man on the planet, the wisest man save Jesus Christ that ever lived, said, But I am but as a little child. At this point he was still humble. Now I say that because he fell away afterward. He, he went after the gods of his his wives, Shemosh and Molech, which was an abomination, but at this point He says, But I am as a little child. Is that how you go before God? Lord, I am as a little child. I not know how to go in or come. I know not, I know not how to go out or come in. I'm as a little child. That's what we are before God, if we really think about it. But do you think if you okay, if you had a kid and they came to you like that, and you said, You know, Susie, I'm really happy with what you did. What do you want daddy to do for you? And that that, that little child came to you and said you know, you show me all this kindness and all these things, but Daddy, I'm as I am as a little child. I don't know how to go in or come. Do you think that would please you? How would that make you feel? How much more so, God? That's why I, I said said you earlier. One of the only things we can give God, and I'm this. This is a separate issue, almost even from salvation, because salvation. We do that through the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm talking about something that we can actually give the Lord. And I mean, you do this through Jesus, no, no doubt. Jesus gives you the ability to be humble and contrite and fear the Lord. But this is one of the only things that we can do to really please God. He says he dwells with those that are a com- contrite and a humble spirit. That's why it's so important. It's never preached on. Then it says, And thy servant is in the midst of thy people, which thou hast chosen, a great people, that cannot be numbered, nor counted for multitude. Give therefore thy servant an understanding heart to judge thy people, that I may discern between good and bad. He's not asking for money, if you notice here. He's asking basically for wisdom. For who is able to judge this, thy so great a people? And this speech pleased the Lord. Whoa. That is like one of the only times in the Bible anything is ever mentioned that it pleased God. Jesus Christ and Solomon, I believe, are the two times it's mentioned where God was pleased. And what was what was he pleased about? Humble in a contrite spirit. That's all it was. It wasn't anything complicated. It wasn't anything where he had to climb up on some mountain and show what a big man he was. It was something simple. What pleases God? The more you humble yourself as a little child before God, I believe God honors that. I believe we've totally proven here scripturally that is, in is, the fear that goes along with that, that is the way we please God. And the speech pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing, and God said unto him, because thou hast Ask this thing and hast not asked thyself for long life, neither hast asked riches for thyself, nor asked for the life of thine enemies, but hast asked for thyself understanding to discern judgment. Now hold on, wouldn't that apply to us? What if we went to God and that was our that was one of our main things we're asking for? Lord God, give me wisdom to know what to do, because you put you mean you've given me this life, and I don't want to mess it up. And I know I can mess it up. And in and of myself I will. Ask for wisdom and understanding. Then it says, Behold, I have done according to thy words. Lo, I have given thee a wise and understanding heart. See, God's the one that does it. He's the one that gives it. (laughs) And of ourselves, we're nothing. The Bible says, Professing themselves to be wise, they became as fools. You you got these guys out there with IQs near 200 and they're going to split hell wide open when they die. What good is their wisdom going to gain them? Most of the time, those type of people think they've got it all figured out and they're so full of pride they couldn't get saved if they wanted to. They need to be humbled. But their IQ is standing in the way. Behold, I have done according to thy words I have given thee a wise and understanding heart so that there was none like thee before thee neither after thee shall any arise like unto thee. Do you understand what he just said? He said there's going to be no man ever born save Jesus Christ that's ever going to have the kind of wisdom, knowledge, and understanding that Solomon was given. That's unbelievable. Not only that, he was the richest man probably that ever lived on, on top of all that. He prayed for the right thing and he meant it. Because God knows the heart. God searcheth the heart. He tried the race. Solomon meant this prayer. He couldn't get this by God if he was, well, I'm going to think about what I'm going to pray to God. I'm going to make it sound real good. You think that's going to fool God? <laughs> No, he, was, he meant it. So, it is apparent that Solomon's prayer embodied humility before the Lord, and that his heart was pure before the Lord in the things that he asked for. Now, the Lord we serve has not changed, as the Scripture states in Malachi 3.6, For I am the Lord, I change not. As far as individuals go, only Solomon and Jesus Christ were ever mentioned in conjunction with pleasing the Lord. I'm not saying that, that that we couldn't please the Lord. You know. But I'm talking about in the Scripture we have. James 2, 4-2. through 2. Ye lust, and ye have not. Ye kill, and ye desire to have, and ye cannot obtain. Ye fight, and ye war, yet ye have not. Because ye ask not. Ye ask and receive not, Because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your own lusts. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is an enemy of God. So, this is the deal. Don't be a friend of the world, or you're an enemy of God. This is something else that's going to get our prayers hindered. So sometimes we don't get our prayers answered because we don't ask, and sometimes because we ask for things that we can consume in our own lusts, That's why we don't get a prayer's answer. God equates this with being an adulterer before the Lord and being an enemy of God. It's pretty serious. Let's go to another one. James 4, 6-11. But he giveth more grace, whereof he said, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto who? The humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh unto God, and he will draw nigh unto you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. When you're afflicted, mourn and weep, what are you doing? You're humbling yourself before God. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to heaviness. Oh, well, I don't want to do that. I want to always be laughing. Well, the Bible says in Ecclesiastes that wisdom is found in the house of mourning. Wisdom is in the house of mourning. That's why a lot of times I'll try to go to... to, uh, you know, if a funeral comes up, if it's appropriate, I'll go to the funeral. Because there's wisdom there. It gets you to reflect on what's really important. It really does. Now, I'm not saying go funeral hopping or anything like that, but I'm just saying that, that there's, there's wisdom in the house of mourning. Okay? The problem is, you go into most houses of mourning, oh yes, he went to be with God in the heavenlies, or, or the masons will call it the great architect in the sky, went to the celestial lodge, it's all life from the pit of hell. These people are split, split hell wide open. They're burning in hell right now, and everybody says, "Oh, he went to a better place." No, he didn't. He went to hell. He's burning forever, or she's burning forever, and you're sugarcoating it, and it's an abomination in the sight of God. Ninety-nine percent of the funerals are that way, because narrow is the way which leadeth to life eternal, and if few there be that find it. Okay, let's say, let's say, out of one hundred funerals, three. Go to heaven. Few there be that find it. I don't know. I don't know what it is. I don't think it's a very high percentage, though, people going to heaven. So, let your laughter be turned to mourning. Your joy to heaven is humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. Notice it says humble here all the time. When you humble yourself, it'll it'll take care of so many things. If you humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, He shall lift you up. Speak not evil... One of another, brethren. Now, there's a big difference between evil and truth, because some people will say, when I put out things on Benny Hinn and these, oh, you're speaking evil of him, you shouldn't do that, you're judging. Well, hold on, there's a big difference between evil and truth. The Bible says, mark them which cause division and offenses. Reprove the unfruitful words of darkness. We're supposed to do this. There's a big difference between evil and truth. Didn't Jesus Christ call the Pharisees and Sadducees vipers and serpents? Oh, that's evil. Well, tell that to Jesus Christ. Big difference between evil and truth. That's why we have to have balance. Psalm 15, verse 1 through 5. Who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? He that walketh uprightly, and worketh righteousness, and speaketh the truth in his heart. Okay, so who's going to abide in God's tabernacle and dwell in his holy hill? He that walketh rightly, worketh righteousness, speaketh the truth in his heart. He that backbiteth not with his tongue, nor doeth evil to his neighbor, nor taketh up a reproach against his neighbor, in whose eyes a vile person is condemned, but he honoreth them that fear the Lord. Here we go again. He that sweareth to his own hurt and changeth not, in other words, doing what you say you're going to do, which I find very, very uncommon, whether it be Christian or not Christian, and most Christians, people don't have integrity. They have no integrity. So many people. Whether they call themselves Christians or not. Oh, I'm going to do this. Oh, yeah, yeah, I'll do that. It never happens. I don't understand that. You're going to be held accountable for these things. If you say you're going to do something, do it. Or if you can't do it, at least get back to the person and tell them why. He that putteth not out his money to usury. Oh my, what's that? We're going to take a look at that. This is, that. hold on, who is this? Who shall abide in God's tabernacle and dwell in his holy hill? He that putteth not out his money to usury? Nor taketh reward against the innocent? He that doeth these things shall never be moved. It's going to be like a rock. Well, so now, why not pray that God does these things in your life? What's usury? According to the Webster's 1828, formerly, it was interest. Or a premium paid or stipulated to be paid for the use of money. The word formally above is in reference to the context it written that it was written in the Bible. So in other words, interest is usury. Now now I hear it's today they say excessive interest. Okay? And then you'll see some people, you know but I don't know, I personally I'd rather err on the side of safety with this. Yeah. What's that? That's right. That's right. So I believe that when the Webster's eighteen twenty-eight says formally interest, we're talking about from a biblical standpoint, the word formerly above is in reference to the context wherein the Bible was actually written. Even in Webster's 28, formerly, was still the Bible, when it was written. So in other words, usury is interest. Oh, me! Well, I loaned 10000 to my brother and uh, he's paying me back 10% interest. I'm sorry, but it says, he that put it, not out his money to usury. Now it says, he that putteth out his money. I also don't think this this is a license for you to go to a bank and draw money. The Bible says the borrower is slave to the lender. You know what mortgage means? Mortgage? Gage means contract. Mort means death. It's where we get the word mortuary, mortal, mortality, mort, death. Death contract. You're owing the bank. All this money. You're in bondage. The borrower is slave to the lender. Well, what do I do? Rent. I think renting is a lot more biblical, p- to be quite honest with you. Or owning outright. I just don't see any biblical, biblical uh, precept for getting in debt. I don't. And I don't see any biblical precept for you putting your money out to your brother to make interest off it. Lord, does that mean I can't ever do any and and listen, I'm not I'm just talking about this one particular thing in here. Put in your money, he that putteth not out his money to usury. That's what it says. Okay? Read it you know, it's Psalm fifteen verse one through five. I'm telling you, these are things that get our prayers hindered that are never talked about from the pulpit, ever. Matthew twenty three twelve and whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. See, we got it all backwards. 1 Peter 5.5 5, Likewise ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another. And be clothed with what? Humility. For God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. 1 Peter 5.6 Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. There's another one. How do we get you? If you really want to get exalted, you better humble yourself under the Lord Jesus Christ's hand. 1 Peter 3 7. Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. This is another thing that hinders your prayers. Are you giving honor unto your wife as unto the weaker vessel? Isaiah 59:1 through 4. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save; neither his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you. See, iniquities is what sep- our sin is what separates us between God. Ever hear like this saying where the heavens seemed as though it was brass, meaning your 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 prayers are going up to this brass ceiling and just bouncing off. Well, that's what can happen when you have iniquity in your heart. Because then the sins hide God's face from you. That he will not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue have muttered perverseness. None calleth for justice. Nor pleadeth for truth. This is the church. They don't call for justice or plead for truth. They trust in vanity. And speak lies; they conceive mischief and bring forth iniquity. It's modern-day church. This verse above that we just read is one of the many prescriptions in scriptures to have your sins, to have your prayers hindered. You want to have your hairs pruned? You want to have your prayers hindered? Do what Isaiah fifty-nine one through four does: defile your hands with blood, your fingers with iniquity, speak lies. Mutter perverseness, don't call for justice, don't plead for truth, trust in vanity, speak lies, conceive mischief, and bring forth iniquity. And you think you're going to get your prayers answered? It's a good prescription to not get your prayers answered. I like to look verses the opposite way that they're also told too, because, you know, you you kind of look at it in a different light. Jeremiah 5.25 Your iniquities have turned away these things and your sins have withholden good things from you. How many people have died and even, even as a Christian and maybe their sins have withholden things from God that He wanted to release in their life. Maybe it was like a door that was there that we kept shut through our own sin and God wanted to open it into our lives but He couldn't because we wouldn't let Him. Jesus said, I stand at the door and knock. If any man will come, you know, I will come and sup with him. Now that's more in reference to salvation. But there's, there's a spiritual precedent for doors that God can open in your lives. You know, open the doors no man can shut, shut the doors no man can open. It's one of the prayers I prayed for, for the Lord in my life, in my family's life. And I mean good doors, <laughs> you know. So, iniquity means injustice, unrighteousness, a sin or a crime, wickedness, an act of injustice, original want of holiness or depravity. That's from the Webster's 1828. Psalm 66, verse 18 through 20 says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. But verily God hath heard me, he hath attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God, which hath not turned away my prayer, nor his mercy from me. Praise the Lord. So if iniquity dwells in our lives, which is the case for the vast majority of professing Christians, God will not hear our prayers. Job 13.23 How many are mine iniquities and sins? Make me know my transgression and my sin. How many of you pray praying that way? Are we praying to know our iniquities and sins so that we can confess them? Now Job was the most upright and righteous man on earth at the time when he uttered the verse. this verse that I just read. So if, if this prayer would apply to Job, surely it would be more aptly even apply to us. Think about it. Job said it. Job said, How many are mine iniquities and sins? Job, who who went through all this stuff that he went through that, 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 that God permitted to happen because he lowered the hedge of protection. Got to the point where Job's wife told him to curse God and die. All of his friends basically judged him and turned against him, essentially. He lost his family, he lost everything. In this, Job never charged God foolishly. It said, "Freely hath the Lord given, freely if you take." Let me just read that verse, real quick. I love that verse in the Bible in regard to Job. Let's just read that real quick. I mean, I think it's an awesome. Totally awesome example. His attitude. I hear some preachers say, "Oh, Job, he had all this in his life. He was all full of pride and all this." Life. Yeah, you try going through what he went through. Yeah, there's a couple verses in there that allude to maybe he had a little pride issue. You know, something. This was the most righteous guy in the world. Who am I going to compare myself to him? Look, listen to what he said after he's after he had started going through all this stuff. And then Job arose, rent his mantle shaved his head, and fell down upon the ground, and worshipped. After he had all this horrific stuff out. His family's gone, he's, he's losing everything. What was his response? To turn on God? No. No, what was his response? Ran his mantle, shaved his head, fell down upon the ground, and worshipped. Verse 21, it said, Naked came out of I from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. Then he says in verse 10 in the next one, when his wife said, Then "then said his wife unto him, Dost thou still retain thine integrity? (laughs) Curse God and die. Can you believe this? Curse God and die? I don't think so. I mean, a, a situation like this is going to do one or two things. It's, it's going to f- cause you to curse God and you're going to die probably, or you're going to draw close to God. And that's why God will send adversity many times. Because you will draw closer to Him than you've ever drawn in your life. But He, being Job, said unto her, Thou speakest as, as one of a foolish woman speaketh. What? Shall we receive good at the hand of God and shall not receive evil? In all this did not Job sin with his lips. <laughs> I can't say that. So he was basically the most upright man on earth at the time. And he uttered this verse. How many are mine iniquities and sins? Make me to know my transgression and my sin. After he'd been through all this stuff. Would we have the strength? You know, the only way you'd have the strength to do that is through the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only one that could give you that kind of grace. That's it. You can't do it of yourself. This was supernaturally inspired. Job 1-1. And there was a man in the land of Uz... Whose name was Job. That man was perfect and upright... And one that feared God and eschewed evil. That's what the Bible says about Job. He was perfect and upright... And that doesn't mean he was living in sinless perfection. Okay, but he was striving toward that. He was perfect and upright... And one that feared... There's only one that lives in sinless perfection... That's Jesus Christ. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God... One that feared God, and he eschewed evil. That means he, he went away from evil. Job 1, eight, And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and upright man, one that feareth God, and escheweth evil? He eschewed evil because he feared God. Let me tell you that right now. Because if he didn't fear God, he wouldn't eschew evil. And that's why the church is in such evil, because they have no fear of God, because they think he's the big guy in the sky. Hosea 4.6, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. And that's how I'm going to kind of end this. These last two verses. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because thou hast rejected knowledge, I will also reject thee. This is knowledge, what we're talking about today here. Spiritual knowledge. Because thou hast rejected knowledge, I will also reject thee. This is God talking. And it says, my people, he's talking about here, that thou shalt be a priest shall be no priest to me. Seeing thou hast forgotten the law of thy God, I will also forget thy children. So now it applies to our children. Be careful what knowledge you reject, as if it is biblical knowledge, it will be to you and your your family's undoing and detriment. I'll end with this. Isaiah 53, verse 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. This is speaking of Jesus Christ before Jesus Christ was ever here. Isaiah, remember, this is Isaiah 53, verse 5. He was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. So see, Jesus paid the sin debt. Okay, but we still need to humble ourselves, pray for humility, contriteness, and fear the Lord, in order to please him. Because you can't walk around as a Christian, acting all pride and boastful, and not come before him as a little child. That's how we please the Lord Jesus Christ. So I'm going to go ahead and end there. This was probably the longest sermon I've ever done. I apologize, but I just felt we had to get all that done. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this time that you've given us. I do pray, God, this message go forth. Lord God, that your name be glorified, that many be saved as a result of hearing this, that many hearts be made right, Lord. I preach this to myself as much as I would I would put this out to anyone, Lord. We humble ourselves before you, Lord God, as little children. And Lord God, in heaven... I pray to God for your mercy. I pray that thy name be glorified. I pray that many would be saved, Lord, as a result of what you would do with your word being preached worldwide. I pray for your fear, for the fear of God to fall upon the Christians, for the fear of God to even fall upon the unsaved, that they may be saved, that they would humble themselves before the Lord. All of these mention, that they, we would come before you as little children, Lord, and understand our position before thee, the creator of the universe, the Most High God, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Alpha, the Omega, the First and the Last. I pray, Lord God, that you do mighty things to the body of Christ. I pray, Lord God, in the name of Jesus Christ, Psalm 64, over the wicked, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, particularly, Lord God, over the over these evil entities, over these devils, these demons, these fallen angels, in the name of Jesus Christ, that their agenda would not be accomplished, that you would overthrow the wicked. And that, Lord God, the people and the workers of iniquity that are of of a human form, that are actually guided by these devils and these demons. I pray, Lord God, if it be possible, their souls be saved, God. But nevertheless, if they are going to never repent, Lord God, and you know the beginning from the end, if they're just going to continue in wickedness, and, and, and pursue wickedness, and accomplish wickedness, and take more people to hell with them, I pray, Lord God, for their destruction. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I claim Psalm 64 over them, Lord God. And that through this judgment, as in the Valley of Achor, it will be the righteous's door of hope. <clears throat> Hear my voice, O God, and my prayer. Preserve my life from the fear of the enemy. Hide me from the secret counsel of the wicked, from the insurrection of the workers of iniquity, who wet their tongue like a sword and bend their bows to shoot their arrows, even bitter words that they may shoot in secret of the perfect. Suddenly do they shoot in Him and fear not. They encourage themselves in an evil matter. They commune of laying of snares privily. They say, who shall see them? They search out iniquities. They accomplish a diligent search. Both the inward thought of every one of them in the heart is deep. But God shall shoot at them with an arrow. Suddenly shall they be wounded. So they shall make their own tongues to fall upon themselves. All that see them shall flee away. And all men shall fear and shall declare the work of God. For they shall wisely consider of His doing. The righteous shall be glad in the Lord and shall trust in Him. And all the upright in heart shall glory. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ we pray these things. Amen.